recording. I don't think I've ever started recording that quickly. That might be a new record. <laughs> Fucking recording, bud. Um, but yeah. Now, did you get a haircut? Did you get a haircut? I trimmed my bangs. Fucking looks great, man. Well, like thanks. This. Yeah, you know what I do is when they start to get in my eyes, I stand in front of the mirror with it wet after I bathe, and I take a pair of scissors and I do that because I've been doing that for most of my life. So, well, I've I mean, saved a shit. I've saved a shitload of money on barbers. Yeah, I mean, as long as you can <laughs> fucking see, I don't know why it matters, right? My mom. Yeah, cut well, my the thing hair. is, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what anyone does with my hair because I've got a calic up in the front, and I, I used to get you know normal haircuts when I was uh, you know a kid, a teenager, and uh, when I first started college. But no matter what they would do, it would look great when I left the barber shop, and then when I got up the next morning, it would just be a like nuclear disaster. Yeah, you got to embrace it. So I just like was, was like fuck it, yeah. I just <laughs> just embrace the madness. Yeah, I, I had my mom cut my hair today because I was start to look like I had fucking horns coming out the back because my hair is going. <laughs> and I was like, I just look dumber and dumber. And normally I wouldn't give a shit, but I was like, you know, because it's not like anyone sees me. And it's like, well, I'm doing a podcast now, and I kind of look like a yeah. kind of look like a more. I definitely look like a guy that's about ready to bring a twelve gauge into an office park. And, uh, but you know, hey, wave to the NSA, I guess. That's got to be a record, too, right? First 90 seconds, wave to the NSA. Haven't had one of those in a while, but yeah, just wave to the boys. I know they're watching. I know I've got more subscribers than I think. I know they're watching. Shout out to everybody at Langley, or no, not Langley, Fort Meade. But, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, Thanksgiving was good. Did some podcasts on the couch. Talking about aliens yeah. and Alex Jones, naturally. Yeah, caught a little of that. Little, yeah. uh, little Thanksgiving, you know, classic Thanksgiving. Talking about interdimensional demons. <laughs> when I say we, I mean me and my cousin and everyone else there. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you know, good family <laughs> shit. But what are we talking about today, Roger? You sent me a link. Well, you sent me an email, but you didn't send a link. You said, yeah, well, you should watch this. Well, I'm, there was I have, I have. Yeah, I well, uh, when you get a chance, you ought to watch that video. That's that is a uh, that's Kaizo Trap, and yeah. it is a video homage to the Mario Brothers uh, like hacked copies that were done by the Japanese that are like super super difficult, and it's an animated uh, short of a girl and her boyfriend who get sucked into the Nintendo, and repeatedly have to play through this game it's a, it's a mario side scroller uh until uh, she can rescue him and it's just brutal and it's hilarious you will love it dude i'm and, and and the way that i found out about it is that during the first boss fight which you'll know when you see it there are passages from the metamorphosis of prime intellect being Fuck projected yeah. on the wall behind Fuck the yeah. girl and her boyfriend who are fighting like the the two yeah. bosses in a Mario game, so it's Fuck like. Yeah. But uh, you'll 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 see what I mean when 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 you get a chance to watch. It's about five minutes long. I got you. And it's absolutely hilarious. Fuck yeah, but, man! Uh, Yo, have you? I don't know why I asked. Have you? Because I haven't put you in touch with that that audible narrator I had on. You need to fucking. You need to get Mopey yeah. narrated. Yeah. Well, I need to. I, I don't think he ever sent me his uh, email address or any contact info. I'm going to send you a text right now, or I'm going to send myself a text as a reminder. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, I want to talk to him about 
making the, you know, what it would take to make the arrangements. I also was thinking of doing another experiment where I would read a story to you on the blog here to sort of. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm texting you right now. I can't multitask. Ah. <laughs> Oh, that is not <laughs> Roger. That is my cousin Ryan. I just said, let me. I'll let you know about the narrator. My cousin that lives in Alaska that I haven't seen in twenty years. It's gonna be like, is this code? Do you have the plutonium core? <laughs> let you know. Okay, I'm texting you right now. Let you know about narrator. Watch the frequency, Kenneth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wave to the NSA. His name's Noah Levine. Okay. okay. Something came through my, on okay, my phone. Yeah, that's I, gotta I heard be it. it. That's got to be it. So. Okay. Um, but uh, what I was saying is I had an idea. There's another story that I wrote that's not very long, mm-hmm. but is a more self-contained story than the uh, excerpts that I read for you that uh, a couple of podcasts ago. And I was thinking about uh, trying to just do the whole thing as a presentation, just sort of see how it goes doing it in my voice. Fuck yeah. Um, because uh, I... I wasn't real happy with uh, the way some of that came out, but I also wasn't trying very hard. So I thought it was great, yeah. dude. It's as long as the narr- the, the, the the author can never do a bad job because it's the author, and other people there is can, that. other people can do bad. But like I've told you, there is the author. To me, I've never found that the author can do it poorly because it's the author, and it's yeah. just. But I liked I liked a lot of the points that your guy made about, oh, yeah. uh, for one thing, that he had an acting background, mm-hmm. which. Uh, I thought that really resonated. Uh, and of course I don't, <laughs> so, um, but, uh, I have had people tell me that they thought I would do a well in radio, but I would have to do some practice and get rid of some, uh, verbal artifacts and ticks and stuff. No, uh, nonsense. Nonsense. You, you've said that before to me, listening to your voice on yeah. here and I'm like, dude, what but are you I, talking about? I think your voice is fine. Well, one of the things I might also do is drag out the good microphone because Elaine did buy one of those microphones with the, the puff shield and everything that you do to, yeah. to do a professional job. So uh, this is this is terrible. I mean, this this thing is 12 years old and the, uh, the uh, puff shield, the, the little bit of foam that went over the microphone disintegrated. Uh, but the reason that I'm still using it is I can't find anyone who sells a set of headphones with a boom mic. They all have like these things. My wireless Pesh 2s that I use to listen to music, uh, they're Bluetooth. They have a microphone in them, but it's crap. I mean, because it's it's up here in the earphone pieces somewhere. I mean, it's like, how the hell does it even work? They don't sell those anymore? I haven't been able to find a pair. I mean, it may be one of those things if I went online and and found a specialty shop or something. But uh, just like going down to Office Depot or something, though, or or Best Buy, uh, not that I've found. Gaming headphones. I think gaming headphones still have them. I don't know though. I'm I'm old now, so I don't know what's what's hip. They might. Yeah, that's that's an idea. But but also gaming gaming stuff tends to be real overpriced for what you're getting. Yeah, Turtle Beach headphones. I know that name. I know Turtle Beach is like the primo line. But if I know that, then that means it's probably not true because I'm not a hardcore gamer. So whatever I know is is new yeah, level, you, you, right? So I'm just eating up. The, oh, we get the new Apple. It's fast, right? Yeah, you, you, you're, you've been you've been advertised. Yeah, I've been I've been fucked. <laughs> I've bent over and I've taken the long dick of of capitalism, like a good boy. Well, and now you and now you get ads for Grand Marnier all the time. Grand Marnier, I've been sending you those, dude. I fucking get them yes, nonstop now. That's hilarious. It's it's nonstop, but none of the other ads have continued. I haven't worked at the liquor store in 
over a month now. I don't get any of the other ads. I don't get any more Grey Goose ads. I don't get any more Dogfish Head ads. But the Grand that Marnier... That suggests that they're scanning the photos with the AI probably when they're uploaded into the cloud. Now that you're not uploading them anymore, but why, even though they're stored, they're probably not getting scanned. But why does the Grand Marnier keep coming through? <laughs> probably the advertising strategy of the company. Probably. Uh, because, because what I suspect they're doing is they're using an algorithm to see, you know, they've probably got a bunch of companies signed up to see if their logos occur in in these photos. They're not supposed to be scanning. <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, they probably each have their own little uh, arrangement with how much they pay and yeah. how many impressions they do and stuff like that. So, um, but, uh, but I mean, actually, uh, you know, I've told a few people about that and I actually like Ram Marnier. It's a dessert liqueur. It's something that you yeah. would have like, uh, like a big snifter with a shot or two in the bottom, so that you, yeah, so that you get to the aroma and all, and it's it's an orange liqueur, so yeah. it's it's made from uh, from oranges, and it's uh, it's very sweet, yeah, and not yeah, you know, it's like maybe forty proof, yeah, um, but yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's related to like amaretto mm-hmm. and angelica and yeah. things like that, but uh, and and they're also used in cocktails, yeah, where you would want a bit of sweetness or a bit of flavor, yeah. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's not a cheap liqueur. It's a, yeah. it's a, you know, probably, I'm going to say it costs about as much, maybe a little more than Jack Daniels by yeah. the fifth. Yeah. Oh. I've never had it, but yeah, no, it, what, what I always liked about it is stocking it. It sounds retarded, but like the glass on the bottles was different. And remember, I'm from, this is from an expert liquor store stalker, <laughs> right? So I touched yeah. a lot of bottles, right? I was, I, I probably spread COVID to more people than anyone else on the eastern <laughs> seaboard right because i was just grabbing bottles putting them off how many people are drinking those taking those little shots i probably gave covid to who knows i probably i probably am responsible for all of the deaths in america You're a one man pandemic i right? am a one man fuck <laughs> blue eyes pale skin fuck it he can i'm shooting losing rotten but yeah, but I, 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 but I got a funny story about about uh, those dessert liqueurs. Oh, but uh, the glass, the glass. Sorry, the glass. Yes, the glass. There was something about the glass that when if you bumped those bottles together, even lightly, there was just like a satisfying thud. It wasn't. It wasn't like a clink. It wasn't clink. Even the big Jack Daniels, like the one point seven five, those were still heavy, you know. But like they still yeah. had that clink, clink, clink. The Grand Marnier, something yeah. about them is just they had a, a satisfying just Yeah, th- those bottles are thick. Yeah, just you'll see some of the fanciest bottles that you'll you'll see on a normal liquor store shelf are for things like dessert liqueurs and all, because they're trying to differentiate themselves. Yeah. You see like yeah, Frangelica yeah. has the long tall bottle and yeah. uh, and you see some of them are real thick like that. Some of the uh tequilas yeah. also have real fancy glassware. Michael Jordan's, yeah. But anyway, yeah. uh, about 20 years ago, our Jackson, Mississippi branch manager took me and one of the other technicians to uh, to dinner at the really nice restaurant. Now, in Jackson, Mississippi, this is like, you know, where, where all of the like state politicos hang out because yeah. he likes to schmooze these guys. And it was a very decent steakhouse. I mean, even though it's, you know, it's in Jackson, Mississippi. But uh, the uh, the thing is, you know, they have full bar. And for dessert, I ordered myself an amaretto because that. David was paying for it. And David and Kevin are these people. It's like to them, the height of elegance in drinking is to order a crown. Okay. There is, that is, that is like, 
you there's 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 rot gut and there's crown yeah those are the, those are the two brands of liquors that yeah. they know about yeah and so they're looking at me so, you know sip this you know amaretto and then they're like what is that and I was like, you guys have never had this? It's like, I tell you, so I called the waiter over and I said, tell you what, get him an amaretto and get him a Grand Marnier. Just to show you know, what they are. These two guys accused me of trying to poison them. Really? <laughs> they like, I mean, no, just no adventure. They took one sip and went, oh my God. It's mm-hmm. like, dude, it's like a freaking candy bar with alcohol in it. What are you? What, <laughs> what is a, what? I don't think I've ever had a liqueur. I'm trying to think. They're very sweet. Okay. And they they're not as alcoholic as a bourbon. Uh most of them are about maybe 40 proof. So, uh they're they're more alcoholic than wine. They they do have uh they're they are distilled. But they also have a lot of sugar left in them and a lot of flavor things from whatever uh, was fermented to make them in the first place. So they're uh, they're very similar to brandy. In fact, mm-hmm. brandy is you know, might be considered a liqueur made of, of grapes yeah. as opposed to wine, which is just a fermented drink. Uh, and there, the see a lot of the recipes are secret. Like the the recipe for amaretto is like four hundred years old, and it's this big secret. Amaretto is made of almonds, by the way. Yeah. I think. Uh, so they all have their special ingredient and their their recipe, and some of them are combinations. Um, and uh, you know, they're but they're really uh, the two ways that you would have them would be to sip like as a dessert, and and you wouldn't sit there drinking it all night. For one thing, it would be a thousand calories if you did that, because um, because there's a lot of sugar left in yeah. them. And uh, and the the other thing you would do with them is use them as an ingredient in a cocktail, where you okay. would, uh, have a bunch of other stuff in there, and that's your flavoring element uh, for for some of the specialty stuff. Um, that- so yeah, they're kind of an acquired thing. Um, okay. My uh, wife is a big fan of them. In fact, a lot of times that that's what I'll get her for because we've got everything else. We don't have room for shit. So so we get each other alcohol for our birthdays and Christmas, and so I'll get her a bottle of Frangelica or something. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but but it was just funny because you got these two guys who are who are much more redneck than they realize, and their response to being introduced to a new form of liquor that they had never experienced before was, "This is awful, man! Yeah. You're trying to poison this. It's like it's full of sugar. It's like it's it's a dessert with alcohol in it." Uh, uh, so I ended up drink. So I ended up drinking their aperitifs too. Fuck yeah! <laughs> fuck yeah. I always loved in Valdosta when they'd really treat themselves. They'd go for like. They'd go for Bud Heavy instead of <laughs> Natty Light or whatever the fuck it was. It was like it was, tonight's a special occasion. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, right. Oh, you well, gonna you gonna go meet her parents first? Like, I got the Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> I got the I got the I got the Camel Hundreds. And it's like, well, oh, man, you know, it's like who's yeah, the man, lucky lady? I ordered I ordered her a crown, man. That shit comes in a bag. You it, know, it's classy. It's, you know, it's yeah. I used to fucking I would wear a crown thing as my mask when I worked at the liquor store. I'm not kidding. My mom sewed it together. Oh, I've of, seen that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I would wear that, and people would be, I don't know, they'd be like, "Is that a real crown?" I'd be like, yeah, it's a crown mask. They'd be like, "Wow." I'd be like, "It comes with." every bottle and they'd be like no shit and i'd just be like 
It's just a crown. Oh, yeah. you, you find someone who drinks a lot of crown, and it's like they have everything known to man been made out of those things. My <laughs> my entire family in New England, crown is the that is the that is the currency up there. I'm not kidding you. We have a quilt at our lake house, Roger. I am not exaggerating when I say it's probably four feet tall, and I'm not no no bullshit nine feet long. All, all crown bags. I mean, this thing's yeah. got to be over a hundred uh, bags of crown. It's insane. <laughs> I'm not exact. It is, it is insane. It is, yeah. But point being, like, there was no point. So anyway, that. yeah. Grand Marnier, was, all that, hail big data. Yeah, that was a nice little decide. Okay, so uh, what I had planned to talk about today is something that should be really simple: measuring length. Nothing fancy like weight, where you've got this kind of mystery behind it and the scale is kind of like a revealer of truth. No, no. How long, how long is something? Right. Because, how hard? Yeah. It, okay. How are you, but more, I'm going to be talking about how to mess that up. Okay. Um, and, I'm already thinking of like problems. Yeah. Right. Cause weight, weight wouldn't be mass obviously. So even on a planet, you could say that the gravity is not all the same, but length. How do you mess that how up? How do you fuck well, that up? Yeah. All right. So, in fact, the first thing that I'm going to show you is something I don't have to show you because I was going to show you a cheap plastic ruler. And I realized, gathering stuff up for this, that I don't have any more of them because the last one finally broke and I never replaced it because they're so crap. But the thing about it is, you know, these cheap plastic rulers, it costs about a dollar. You get it to five and dime. And uh, I remember when I was a kid and my dad taught physics and uh one year he went down to the five and dime and bought a bundle of these cheap plastic rulers so he could pass them out. And so each of all of his students could have one in the lab. And when we got them back to the lab and held them up against the good steel ruler, they were wrong. I mean, so? brand new. Like scaled, <laughs> like overall length or like, like, yeah, like they were the wrong fucking length. It's like, you know, you lost. Roger. Did we just lose Roger? <laughs> you're you're is, back. You're back. You froze. You froze up. You disappeared. You said the wrong length, and then you froze. They were the wrong length. Yeah, it's like you lined up the one inch, and then the eleven inch. And my dad and I were just like, you know, how do you fuck up a foot ruler? This is the. You know, I, I mean, but the thing is, this is why we have stand. Roger, you're uh, you're blinking in and out of reality here. And call them on it. Hey, Roger, you're uh, your your connection's blinking in and out. You're back now. Well, I'm. Let me close the. I just web. I just shut down my other programs. Maybe yeah, the only the only other thing I got running was Netscape, but uh, might have been so, me. Oh, whatever. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. So how do they fuck up length? Yeah, I mean, how do you make a foot ruler that ain't the right length and get it into the drugstore and actually sell it to people? I mean, so this is why we have standards bodies and compliance checks and all this and uh, all this stuff that is almost comically, you would wonder, why the hell do you have it? And this is where we're going to go today. Fuck yeah. So tape measures, okay? My company used to be just uh, mostly a scale company and about 10 years we start ago we started branching out we started with torque wrenches which need to be calibrated it's a common industrial thing uh but then we started branching out into other lab stuff 
because people who have scales have torque wrenches. People who have torque wrenches have other devices like that. And so one of the services we offer is we will calibrate a tape measure. Now, what? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I have two tape measures here. This one is about 30 years old. I've been using it for much of my life. This is a brand new one that was given to me as swag last year by one of our manufacturers. And I, sure enough, I laid them out and they're not the same length. Now, you don't think about this. It's a steel tape. How does it? Well, steel is not perfectly stable. And a lifetime of being wound and allowed to do that has stretched this very slightly. So you get out about three feet and you can tell that the hash marks are no longer in, in the same place. And now for most of what people use these for, it, it wouldn't matter much, but sometimes it does. And so company I work for will calibrate your tape measure. Now, when it turns out that it's wrong, there's not exactly a knob you can turn to go back and fix it. So what you generally do is that, you know, it's like, what else can you do? But at least you know that what you're working with is correct. Yeah. So that's, that's where we are with some of this stuff. But uh, now if you think about it with an inch ruler like that, I've got a, a couple of things. I have a foot ruler that is not a piece of shit. This is an engineer's drafting ruler. And you can see the cross section is made so that when you sit it on a, a piece of paper, it, the marks get very close to the paper so that you can do a good, accurate job of, of marking your length and, and, and tracing it. And the different scales are actually not like inches and centimeters. Uh, they're all inches. There's a primary inch scale here. I don't know if you can make it out. Mm -hmm. These are, yeah. okay. The other scales are also inches, but they're fractional. So like the, uh, you'll notice that that scale has a 10 by it. Uh -huh. Well, I think that's on the end here. Uh -huh. You see that? Yeah. Okay. If we go to, all right, the next one over is the 30. And this one has three pseudo inches per real inch. So 30 is thirds of an inch. The uh, next one over here is 20, which is half inches. And what this was used for is doing three-dimensional projections on a drafting table. So you would do your... Uh, like if you, you want to draw a three-dimensional drawing of something, okay. you would draw like your face of your cube, then you would get your triangle to put this at an angle, and you would use one of the shortened uh, scales oh. to draw your offsets going off into the z-axis. So, oh. so you don't have to do math. Oh. You can just use the original uh, dimensions, but draw your drawing with the perspective or the projection. And so this thing uh, is actually fairly accurate, and it was probably about 10 bucks. 40 or 50 years ago. Um, so that is an example of a non-cheap foot ruler. Uh, I thought I had a steel ruler, but I don't. And I also have a little curiosity here. Uh, the uh, DigiKey electronics retailer sent these out as swag to all of their customers for a few months. This is a, a circuit board. It's a oh. ruler made out of a circuit board. Oh. They pay... So they basically drew this ruler in a CAD program and sent it to their circuit board manufacturer and told them to make a bunch of them. And it is actually pretty accurate. It's got a whole bunch of reference stuff here, and it's got different pads and holes. So if you're actually designing 
electronics. There's, there's a lot of cute stuff here. But the length measurements are also pretty accurate because the, uh, the measurements for circuit boards have to be pretty accurate for everything to, to register. So they didn't have to do anything special to make an accurate ruler. They already had the accuracy built into this mass manufacture process. And they were just like, yeah, let's, let's make a buttload of rulers and send them to all of our engineer nerd friends. So uh, now the thing about foot rulers and tape measures and stuff like that is that you're dependent on your visual acuity mm -hmm. and the size of the marks to, to get your accuracy. And if you think you're doing better than a 32nd of an inch, then you're fooling yourself because, because you're, you're not going to be able to mark things that accurately. You're not going to be able to set things. Uh, so that's about the limit, you know, even, even with the reading glasses and all, you know, it, it's, it, it's really more for 16th of an inch and, and things like that. When you get down to needing a little more, this is a dial gauge. And this guarantees a hundredth of an inch. Fuck. And as as you can uh, maybe see here, I can't tell because I'm looking at a thumbnail yeah, of yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. But if you can see the dial twirl twirling around in there, uh, that gives your hundredths of an inch as you slide. Roger, this, I can uh, I can help you see you better. I it, on the top right hand, you should see a little. Like it says a uh, gallery view. Do you see that? Uh, if you're on Zoom. View, oh, view, gallery yeah. view. Click on okay. that. Oh, yes. Yeah, I didn't figure that out until 200 episodes in. <laughs> yeah. So so you can you, you can make out that that needle is spinning around. Mm -hmm. And when it's at home, it's pointed at zero, which is upside down here because they, so, they did the dial. So how do you but, use it? Like, is there... Okay. Well, it's neat because you can use this. Uh, it's a very versatile little thing. Uh, you can use this to do outside measurements, like... What's the diameter of this thing? Okay. But but using these tines up here, you can do inside measurements. Like what's the inside diameter oh. of a hole? Ah. And, and using this part that sticks out the end, you can do depth. Oh. Uh, so you can do the depth of a hole or the thickness of a plate. And if you're doing uh, something that's hard, like metal, uh, then this thing pretty much does what it says on the can. It gives you accuracy of a hundredth of an inch. You can also pull uh, this little trick with it. You can set your forks around something and tighten this little knob here, and that locks it in place. Okay. So then you can go look for something that okay. fits in here or compare it with something else to see if it's bigger or smaller. Uh, so uh, this is a pretty mature instrument. They... Uh, there's a simpler form of it called a vernier caliper, where instead of the dial, you have a secondary uh, static-like rule. Mm -hmm. And the way that the vernier dot, uh, the vernier works is it's got ten hash marks in the space where you would normally have nine, and you get your two significant figures the normal way but then you look at the vernier dial you know, the vernier gauge to see which of the hash marks exactly aligns with one of the main hash marks and which one of those lines up tells you the next significant figure so you you can also you know with a simple vernier uh, gal games uh, like this you can also get a hundredth of an inch and you can reliably read it can, but can the, you walk the dial me, can you walk me through the the fucking 
the gauge. Okay. I was thinking that it was like some sort of, whoops. I was thinking that it was some sort of like, I don't know why, like air pressure. Like you use that to turn it so you can get down to hundredths. Oh, no. Is See that this little read? knurled knob here? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm using that to roll it back and forth. Then what is, so is that just, is that the reading of the hundredths? Yeah. But if, if you watch the dial, if you see it goes around one revolution, uh-huh. that is a tenth of an inch. Okay. If you look at the main gauge here, which is a little harder because it's engraved, uh, you will see that it is at the tenth of an inch mark. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little hard to make out, but no, you can see it. Yeah, so so that's a tenth of an inch. Plus, you know, then you add whatever's on the dial, and you have wherever you are to a hundredth of an inch. So this will measure a, a, up to six inches to an accuracy of a hundredth of an inch, and very easily, which is good for someone with poor eyesight, like older people like me. Yeah. Um, and uh, and this is fairly reliable. You do not have to worry about treating it uh, carefully. It, you don't have to worry about environmental things. It, it pretty much does what it says on the can, like I said. Uh, and I've actually made things using the uh, this caliper and jigs that uh, using ordinary equipment in my garage uh, that had to be a hundredth of an inch in mm-hmm. order to to meet tolerances for things like forms uh, and. Uh, you have to learn some little mechanical tricks, but uh, using jigs, uh, I was able to get, uh, I was able to cut aluminum to an accuracy of a hundredth of an inch using uh, a guide and using this to tell. Now, every time I changed the blade on the jigsaw, I had to do another test cut and then measure where the test cut was to the jig. So I would know how to offset this thing Mm -hmm. to set the jig up for the cut that I wanted to make. But if you, you know, those are machinist tricks that um, when you read about the difference between a skilled machinist and an amateur machinist or, or someone who's who's just getting started, it's things like that. Yeah, it's knowing the limits of the things and how to like work past them. But the, this mechanism, uh, these these three mechanisms here are a basic thing you see in a lot of more sophisticated instruments as well. You're doing inside, outside and depth measurement and it's all with the same mechanism so it's very economical and you can pick one of these up for about uh 20 30 dollars uh really i got this one from harbor freight uh now they make bigger ones i have a 12 inch rule uh a 12 inch gauge it's just looks just like this but it's longer and because it's longer it has to be heavier per unit inch too because it has to be more rigid and it's electronic Instead of the dial, it's got a little electronic module little, here little, yeah. with a display, which is cool, or at least it was cool until it broke. I was about to say, I feel like you would, <laughs> I feel like you would want the dial, right? That's that, what, in my yeah. mind. Yeah, you I'm, a, I'm old school because the dial doesn't need batteries, yeah. and I, I, I've had uh, two of those electronic ones. They're about 50 bucks because the, cause they're – physically larger you know that's they're they're 12 inch gauges instead of six inch uh, but the one that i bought for myself i can still like clamp this around something and, and lock mm-hmm. it in place and use it as a reference guide sure. and stuff but it doesn't accurately measure length anymore because sure. the module stopped working it was, and it I was like it was like the norad hard drive vault 
Yeah. <laughs> I realized one day it wasn't opening. It's because it's an electronic <laughs> lock. And I was like, well, we have come to quite the uh, crossroads here because <laughs> I've got this mm. thing that cannot be broken into. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> so I had a, I had that exact problem. I bought my wife a little house safe so that she wouldn't have to go up into the attic to, to store shit, uh, store shit and all. And I told her there's a brass key. That's the override. Don't lose it. Yeah. Because if something happened, and eventually the electronic mechanism just stopped working at all. Now that's what I get for buying cheap shit from Harbor Freight. But yeah, yeah, the, but yeah. but it's a danger with the, even if the good stuff. If you leave the battery in it long enough, then it's going to die. Yeah. Well, it has like a thing have- on the side. You can basically like touch it with a battery, like one of those okay, like, twelve yeah. volts. It has something there you can touch it basically, and it'll turn back on. Because I was okay, like, yeah. I was like, this is a tricky scenario. How do you change the batteries? If, the, if, it's, if it's yeah if you if you if you leave them if you let them die then yeah it was like the uh the ford escape that i was uh almost getting the, the uh the tr- the hatchback release is electronic the the switch <laughs> in the back of the car isn't mechanical it's a button and i had this thing the gps guy ran a screw through the main cable and destroyed the car but you know for several months i had this thing where the battery would die every couple of weeks because the computer would stay on and drain it and i couldn't get I, I would have to put it on a fucking battery charger in order to get in the back of the car so i could take my shit out of it before i sent it to the dealership again so that that is a nasty little situation and a lot of cars nowadays the only car the only door that has a donkey key socket for the for the mechanical key is the driver's side door it's my car and my fucking electronic yeah. thing broke a month ago so like a fucking the, peasant i have to go unlock it i have to go unlock it with an actual actual metal key like some yeah like some peasant i should be riding around <laughs> on a horse bringing is, freshly is, squeezed milk to the fucking to the upper class i am that, i am dirt i am dirt um a side tangent on the note of this thing locking up which i figured out pretty easily how to change um i picked up some more hard drives black friday <laughs> I uh, so tempted. I told myself I wasn't going to. The ones in here are fine. These ones are wrapped in like EMP bags, but just desktop. Just some big old fucking, right, 10 terabyte, 16 terabyte. I may or may not have picked up some on Black Friday for like 75% off on Amazon. I got a 10, ter- uh-huh. I got a 10 terabyte, and then I picked up a 16 terabyte, and then I may or may not have picked up two 12 terabytes. <laughs> so, what? Well, because I needed, I wanted five total, so that now the uh, now these ones on the desktop, they will now be my Pentagon, and I can have A ring through E ring, just like the Pentagon. <laughs> so I have, I have A ring, I have Pentagon, A ring, like a sane person, right? <laughs> like a now I can have a Pentagon on my desk. It's gonna look like a pentagram okay. calling in, but yeah, we're getting way off. But yeah, so, so for anyway, that, for, for that gauge, so that, for that gauge. So my first yeah. thought was, my first thought yeah. was like that was a way. I, I figured it was like some sort of like that dial on the top. I thought you could spin that and then like that's how you no. can measure a hundredth of an inch. This, this this knurled knob here is what you use to like slowly yeah. move it back and forth so you have control over sure. it. Okay. And there and there is a, a rack and pinion built into this thing just like the one that steers your car. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what makes the dial go around. Like a peasant. Is, yeah. is this, so there's a linear gear 
and we will calibrate these for you too. Yeah. Although just like with everything else, calibrating go, means basically, well, it ain't right. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, ain't working. What do I do with it? Yeah. I don't know. There is a, there is a zero adjust. Uh, it, it can get off there. And, uh, this knob here on the dial yeah. is what sets the zero point for okay. it because, because it can get a little sloppy. But, uh, the thing about it is this is metal to metal. So, uh, for the most part, uh, you don't have to worry too much about, uh, these things flexing as long as you don't, well, abuse it, then, yeah. uh, you'll get, fairly consistent results with this thing if you measure the same thing four times you'll get the same reading uh hot days cold days yeah you know dirt on it whatever uh and a hundredth of an inch uh is allows you to do some pretty slick things in the in the home shop uh i i was doing uh papercrete molds that were accurate enough that only the water would come out when i when i compressed them Jeez. and the paper would stay inside Jeez. Uh, so yeah, uh, so it's uh, you know it's it, it, it's the next level if you need a more accurate measurement. But I'm just getting started. Yeah, I was about to say. I was about to say. <laughs> can you get into thousands? Yes. Now, if you want to get into thousands, read, you need. You read my please. mind. You read my mind, Roger. <laughs> this Fuck. is a set of micrometer calipers. And you'll notice each of them has a travel of one inch. So there's a set of three of them going from zero to one, from one to two, and from two to three inches. And these are only used for outside measurement, but they use a screw. These have a 20-pitch screw. And What is that, 20-pitch? Uh, 20, 20 turns per inch. inch. Okay. These, these, are, these are English... Uh, units so this is an inch caliper turns per inch and per yeah inch. and uh so you uh basically first of all you pick the right one for the thing you want to measure that one's too big um so you you put the lens you just broke in here <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you tighten the screw on it and the combination of how many turns you've gone and how far you are around the last turn gives you your distance here to a, th a thousandth of an inch. Now, this is a screw. Screws compress things. I was about to say, so does the actual measurement... So what do you do about the fact that I can get another quarter turn yeah. out of this thing by squishing it? That's what this is for. This is a friction clutch. And it's there to make sure you always put the same, same amount of torque on the screw so that you're always pressing the same amount before you stop so that you get consistent readings. That's uh, – see, I was going to say like when, whenever I did super serious about dieting in college, trying to get like 10 abs, sometimes when I was really hungry and I'd measure out a bowl of cereal, I would just <laughs> take my knuckles and I would crunch it all. <laughs> And I put in like another cup, and it was just me jacked yeah. up on Adderall. Like I can't have enough calories, but I was just <clears throat> put a thousand yeah. and, calories. And that in. is an issue when you start getting into finer measurements. Is that you start, you know, your measuring device may distort the thing that you're measuring. Uh, now and also, these are fairly old, and they are made by a very advanced high precision instrumentation company you may have heard of. Let's see if we can get it here. 
bring it close. Sears. Hey. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Now, these are old. And so they are only rated for a thousandth of an inch. They are rated uh, for uh, one, uh, one thousandth of an inch. The newer ones, you can go on eBay, oh, not eBay, Amazon, and get a set just like this. Three ages, zero to three inches. Uh, plus, they'll have a couple of uh, little bars to calibrate the ones that don't close all the way uh, for about 65 bucks. But nowadays, they're advertising a ten thousandth of an inch. In addition to oh, this gauge, in addition to the gauge here, they have a, a, an additional vernier gauge, like I was talking about with the vernier calipers. Only they apply that to the rotation to get another digit. Now that makes this problem a lot way of worse. One order of magnitude is it an order of magnitude yeah. or is it exponential for the friction? It, it, I, it's probably linear, so it'd be an order of magnitude. Uh, so yeah. So how do you fix that? There's also the problem of how flat these faces are. Yeah, yeah. That's an issue. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you have it's, some of these that curved. don't have flat faces like this. They go to a point. But the problem is that makes the problem of compressing the thing even you're measuring worse, right? the screw even worse. Forces what forces? Was it pre, wait? Was pressure force divided by area? So it's mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, you're so so you, you put a hole in the thing you're trying to measure because you're tightening a screw on it. That's what screws do. How many women uh, do you think have measured their weights over the centuries and like <laughs> broken a rib? Just been like, I am beautiful. <laughs> Well, there, there, there was the whole corsetry fact. I was about to say, yeah, what was it Titanic in the movie Titanic? Yeah, yeah, whale bone, whale bones, and yeah, all that, yeah, stuff. all that healthy, um, healthy, healthy self image. But yeah, so yeah. it has to be flat. Now they make versions of these things that work on similar principles that have electrical contacts. If you're measuring something that conducts electricity, you can stop the screw. Oh. When the circuit is completed, oh. that way, that way, you're not putting a bunch of force on the thing that you're measuring. But the problem with that is you've got you can only use that on things that conduct electricity. So, uh, you know, if I wanted to measure the thickness of a piece of plastic with this, uh, the friction clutch would probably over tighten it. It would compress the plastic because plastic's more compressible than metal, and I would get an error. Yeah. And there's a whole, I mean, thing the air starts to get thin. Yeah, when it's, you're, it starts when you're to, looking at accuracy, it starts like to get this. a little hairy. But I was going to say, I feel like with things that were electrically conductive, I feel like that's yeah, all that, you'd be that, using. That is actually considered one of the most accurate ways to get a place. They they make a machine called a super mic. We have one at the shop. Okay, that's like this big. It's got a a uh, instead of this armature, it's got a great big about the steel bar about this big with a pinion on it with a with a with a rack and a screw pinion it's it's really complicated but it can be used with the electrical conductivity method and it can measure longer things but the problem is that we don't have very good temperature control in our shop and oh, it's like a, you know, that starts to matter it, it it starts to matter because you're measuring something <laughs> that's a foot long but it's it made of metal then and you're measuring it to a ten thousandth of an inch <laughs> then it's not the same length no. at 77 degrees that it is at 68. Fuck. And it's measurably not the same length. Fuck. Well, that's... <laughs> and the whole machine has the same problem. Fuck. So... Wait, cause that... what, can the machine expand? Yeah. Fuck. The machine itself expands and contracts 
because it's all based on this big steel bar. Oh, no. And, yeah. This is and like- a four-foot-long steel bar is not the same length when you're, you know, when you're measuring a ten-thousandth of an inch. You know, a 10-degree Fahrenheit change in the temperature changes that sucker very noticeably. This is like the so, gods smashing us down from the Tower of Babel. The gods are like, you are getting too close to the source code. Oh, I haven't gotten to the best stuff. Oh, yet. I know because we are humans okay. and we are arrogant. <laughs> but, but yeah. Well, the thing is, when you start uh, looking at stuff like this, you eventually realize the whole world is made of rubber. Actually, uh, in, a, in solid ma- in solid matter, the atoms are held together by electric fields mm-hmm. linking the atoms, and those electric fields are elastic. Yeah. They change length when they're put under pressure. They change length when they are uh, the temperature changes. Uh, they uh, it, it's it's nuts, and uh, the instrument itself is made of matter. So the only way you get around that is if you use something laser. like a laser interferometer. Laser, that uses yeah, light. That, yeah. Okay, but but if you're using a physical gauge or a physical measuring device to measure matter both the thing you're measuring and the thing you're measuring it with start to act like they're made of rubber when you start getting down to ten thousandths and worse of an inch do you think that's where the this is like a this is like a dumbed down lesson on like the observer effect right particle and wave well, it was already known when the uh, all of all of this stuff was well known in the 19th century, and uh, I think that it probably did have an uh, an influence on the guys in Copenhagen when they were doing quantum mechanics, because the idea that the act of observing something, the act of measuring it, changes the thing that you're measuring, because you have to apply some kind of force to it, so, yeah. was all was already a physical problem in the lab, uh, and saying that this is a fundamental problem with the universe in as a whole isn't that much of a stretch from dealing with all these problems uh that occur just when you're trying to make uh oh how about two metal surfaces that slide against one another and make a gas tight seal like in an engine and we were having to do that in the 19th century in order to make even steam engines other otherwise you're losing power and it's leaking Mm -hmm. all over the place in fact early steam engines were low power and leaked all over the place because they had poor seals that was one of the first problems that they started to solve in the early 19th century was how to seal the piston up with uh uh, with piston rings and stuff like that wait to they don't use gas i thought they used like rubber or like a fluid that's metal on metal yeah well they they lubricate it with oil but Yeah, yeah yeah It's it, it it's uh, rubber and all wouldn't last too long in an internal combustion engine. <laughs> Damn, this. Whenever it's I have you, against, whenever I it's have metal you on, against metal, and the tolerances are like worse than a ten thousandth of an inch. Whenever I have <laughs> you on, Roger, my view of the universe always gets its. You always take the rug out from under it. I come away dumber but smarter after talking to you. Well, it, it's 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 one of those things. I mean, there's actually a lot of people who are in amateur land who do know a lot about things like that because there's a lot of people who work on their engines. They know the physical principles involved. Uh, there there are techniques that are uh, that are not particularly high tech that you can use to make metal things fit together very closely. 
without necessarily making them accurate. You're making, you're just making them accurate with respect to one another. And this is one of the things about early firearms. You've heard, I know that early guns didn't have interchangeable parts. And the reason for that is that the gunsmith was a skilled guy who would take every gun and form the parts by honing them against one another with patterns of motion that they knew would grind them into compatible shapes so that they would move properly against one another. And learning those motions and the the uh the uh, abrasives to use and the uh the steps of abrasive because you start with coarse abrasives and then you move to finer ones until you're doing a polish and getting those parts to fit together correctly uh was a was an art i mean it was something that you would learn as an apprentice and in a lot of cases there were secrets yeah that uh, you know that would be maintained by the guilds and all but the thing is, you might make three guns and you might get all of them to function by getting all of their parts honed and uh, shaped so that they would move properly and make the mechanical action. But if you take a part from this one and mm-hmm. put it on that one, they're not going to fit. No bueno. So this was the soul of the American method of manufacture was instead of forming things against each other like that well it's like if you make a home telescope if you if you make a telescope by grinding your own telescope mirror that is a very low-tech thing really uh you can do it in your backyard and you're just messing one piece of glass against another and there's certain motions that you make and pressures that you do and then you do tests nowadays you get a laser but back in the day you would uh put chemicals in an alcohol flame in order to get monochromatic light to do an interference test. And you'd see, okay, this part's a little high, this part's a little low. So we're going to grind it a little different and you could get a good parabolic curve, but you didn't have a lot of control over the exact focal length you were going to get. So you might get, if you made two telescopes using the exact same technique, they might both function perfectly, but one might have a, a, an inch longer focal length than the other. And if you tried to use them to make a binocular, it's all going to be out of whack. So in industry, you know, you, you can't do that. And the early steam engines, they did that. That was how they made pistons fit tightly in cylinders was they were individually honed. The problem with that is that when it breaks, which, uh, or if it's a gun gets, gets, knocked about in the war because people are shooting at you and subjecting it to all kinds of stress. You can't just pop in another part and go shoot at stuff. You you have to take it back to a gunsmith who can make a new pair of parts, a new set that, that fits together correctly. So the whole point of the American method of manufacture was that instead of making these things to each other using these artisan techniques, you were making them to standards and, uh, they came up with what they called no, go no go gauges, which in the original days, those gauges were handmade by artisans in the plant machine shop. But what they were making was a gauge that you would use to see whether the part you had just made was the right size or not. So if it fit in this and it didn't go any further, then you would know it's intolerance and you can use that part in the next step. And, uh, and this, th- there was a lot of variations on how stuff was done to make all of this practical uh, and uh, to use it in more and more complex situations so that you could make more and more complicated machines. Uh, but a lot of the difference, you know, cars, 
go a lot further today with a lot less maintenance than they did in the 50s. And one one of the reasons for that is tighter tolerances. Everything is machined to tighter tolerances nowadays because all of those arts have advanced and a cylinder that fits more closely will will pass less oil. It'll hold the gases better. Uh, it just generally performs better. It doesn't wobble as much going up and down. And you would think, how much does a piston wobble? Oh, they, they can measure all this shit. Yeah, yeah. And then you just add it up over millions of cycles. Yeah, and so... In in the fifties, you had to change your oil every three thousand miles, and once your engine had a hundred thousand miles on it, it was shot. Nowadays, you change your oil every seven ten thousand miles, and you drive two hundred thousand miles with the, the hood welded shut. No, you know it's like you know, you just don't worry about it anymore. Yeah, and that's because of these tolerances being met in manufacturing, and that brings me well. I pause that I was going to say but that makes me think because I was thinking about SR71 mm-hmm. pilots like uh, is it Brian Scholl who fuck I need to get that guy on this podcast but that guy wrote jet, the, he wrote jet the, engines are like nothing else as far as precision they have stupid scary precision but, and they have to deal with massive temperature changes yeah so they have to make bearings and shit that maintain their precision when all of these parts, which are sometimes made of dissimilar metals that don't have the same coefficient of expansion, they have to model the whole thing to make sure that it will all perform in spec when it's cold, when it's hot, when a bird hits it. You know, it's just, you know, it's it's, nut, it's nuts. The Because the, the stresses on a jet engine are like, yeah, almost almost up there with the the strength of materials that's theoretically possible for solid matter, and uh, a tolerance problem that uh, well another another place where you see it and probably to about the same degree is the difference between Formula One and race cars and your car in your garage. Okay, they regularly look for hundredth of a thousand hundred thousandth of an inch tolerances. They will generally try to make their all of the parts in that engine, you know, ten times more accurate than the ones in your car, because they're pushing all the envelopes with the performance. And in a lot of cases, by the time they run a race with that engine, it's been destroyed as far as the yeah. tolerances they were aim- aiming for, because yeah. things don't keep those tolerances when you subject them to all those forces and pressures and temperatures and stuff. So. Uh, this is one of the big things is that they uh, in, in NASCAR and F1 and, and all these uh, disciplines, they rebuild the engines like after every race and they'll have four engines because, yeah. you know, one of them will throw a rod anyway. Yeah. Uh, and the tolerances in jet engines are very similar to that. And again, this is why, you know, you figure you drive your car for five thousand dollars. You've barely worn the engine. You drive a jet engine for five thousand dollars. It's time for an overhaul. Yeah. Well, and, and, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, Air Force One, they change out everything. Well, not everything, but they change out. Like I, I, I watched a documentary in Air Force One. It was fucking great. But they talked about they're like the stuff that you change every like two months on a normal plane gets changed every time this thing lands. N- yeah. New tires. Straight up new tires. It lands new tires. You ever landed in a plane with a flat tire? I have. No. It's not fun. No, Roger. I'm not. <laughs> <And> those- <laughs> No, not intentionally. And those tires are 
those, you know, that's another thing. I mean, that's not, I'm talking more about measurement precision today, but, but yeah, things like that, where you're talking the film with about, nitrogen instead. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, they go from not turning to going 300 miles an hour <laughs> in a fraction of a second when they hit the <laughs> ground Yeah, and yeah. they're made of rubber. Yeah. Well, I was going to say so, the SR-71, <laughs> not a ma- ma- mass produced thing. They made what, like 20 of them? And I was thinking, because mm-hmm. that's not a mass-produced thing, so was it interchangeable parts? And in Skunk Works no. by... Ben, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of the SR-71 parts were done by artisan style, well, that's, uh, especially that, like the body panels well, and that's stuff like was, that. That's what I was getting at. Ben Rich talked about that. Not only that, it was with titanium, so they were using a lot of instruments that they had never used before. And with that... Yeah. What did that well, also pile? a lot of the, for, the forming methods for titanium, things that work on normal metal don't work on titanium. Well, and that's so what they... they to, yeah. They had to they had to make all this up as they went. But I was going to say that that pilot Brian Schul, he talks about. He said you had to have your SR seventy one because if you flew your buddies, he was like different experience. He said they were all women and they all had wildly different personalities. <laughs> but really, he was like you'd be pushing this thing, and sometimes you'd be up there and you could tell she was just giving you a bad day, and he'd be like, "Hey, we're keeping this thing at Mach two point five. There'd be other days where they'd be like she'd just purr and you would just touch it forward and it would be like, how fast do you want to go? But I was like, that probably well, because comes Because also from... all the parts move with respect to one another <laughs> yeah. and, and the body and everything. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. like, but, but yeah, when you go to things like that, uh, race cars are, are also pretty much artisan things. Now they'll, they'll do a race car engine. They'll do it to standards. I'm about to show you something that's really oh, going to yeah. blow your mind. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, but, but yeah, they'll do that to standards, but in a lot of, in a lot of ways, the uh, construction of a race car is more like artists and stuff where you're pushing what standards methodology can do and going more into artists and stuff to get uh, stuff together even better so than like- you can get. Right. It's like the it's like the standards is like the front of the plane and like artisan is like the shock wave in front of it. It's just like kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. Roger, I'm going to go piss because it's at the one hour point and I'm a creature of habit. Okay. <laughs> Roger Williams, <laughs> author of Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. Roger, monologue. Yes. Uh, get uh, my book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect from uh, any bookseller online, including Amazon. Uh, but if you get a paper copy instead of an ebook uh please consider going to lulu.com and getting it from them because they have to charge you the same price but they give me a lot more of the money uh got a lot of other stuff listed at localroger.com or if you just look for roger williams and prime and elect on the usual search services on amazon and them um and we're working on thinking about getting it on audible that's that's another matter I am going to make an effort to stop fucking interrupting you. (laughs)
<laughs> I interrupt a no, lot. That's fine. <laughs> that's, that, that's fine. Actually, you ask very good questions. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the stuff that I'm bringing is stuff that a lot of people have never seen, don't even know exists. And uh, much of our civilization wouldn't exist without it. Yeah. And that brings me Woo. to something really cool. Billy urged to sing Thus Spake Zarathustra. This what? is a gauge block. I feel like now you're just lying to me because that just looks like a block. It does, doesn't it? It's a steel block, okay? Uh, it has a friend. Okay. This one is four inches long, and this one is three inches long. And by that, I mean exactly four inches and three inches to within about a hundred thousandth of an inch. These are standards. Now, the reason that I have them here to play with is that both of these have been ruined. Okay. They are, they are dead. And the way that they got ruined was one of our technicians took the set out of the shop and left it in his pickup truck for two weeks in Southern Louisiana. Okay. Where it was hot and humid and they rusted. I'll see if I can show you. Uh-huh. On the edge. Can you see the, the discoloration there on the end? Yeah. Okay. That's the pitting from where it rusted. And at first we thought the entire kit had been had been ruined. This is this is a kit. Uh well these are from a kit of and just uh Went straight on my head. How many blocks are on this damn thing? I think it's 64 blocks. But anyway, um, it's a whole set of these blocks that are meant to be assembled to make standards of any arbitrary length from a tenth of an inch to several feet in intervals of a ten thousandth of an inch. And about a third of them were ruined. We sent these off to the lab to recertify them. And both of these blocks came back. Yeah, can't do it lost too much uh, crap off the end, can't can't rehome them. So uh, before they were fucked up, each of these blocks, these blocks are also, they're not just gauge. You can get a set of gauge blocks to use like in, in your, uh, your like, shop manufacturing plant for mid-hundreds of dollars. You know, like I could use those, right? I could use those, yeah. right? They're still four and three inches. Like, Yeah, well, you can use them for rough crap, but not what they were designed for. Uh, which, which, which I'm getting to. Okay. 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 Uh, so, uh, each of these blocks before it was destroyed was worth between a hundred and a hundred and fifty dollars. Okay. The set that they came out of cost 6,000. <laughs> now the ends of these things. Now each of these still has one good end. Fortunately, mm-hmm. See, that one is shiny. Okay. Now the good ends, these things are very, very flat. They are flat to within six millionths of an inch. <laughs> they are so flat that there is a stupid gauge block trip, which I will try to demonstrate for you. I'm I'm not a gauge block guy, though, so we'll see if I can get this right. Almost. I'm trying to do I, this without dropping one of them on my computer. I, I think I can. What I'm trying to do here, there we go, is ring them together. They are so flat, they will stick. 
How's that? Yeah, the, so what? Just gets rid of all the air or creates suction or? Funny you should ask that. Now, these don't stick very well because they've been messed up. So they make this cute little helper thing that once you ring them together, uh, you can put this in place to hold them a little more strongly. And voila, seven inch fucked up gauge block. Um, how the ringing force works. Yeah. Uh, that's a very good question. Nobody knows. Uh, why do these things stick together? Uh, it's not magnetism because you can ring blocks that are not made of steel. These, these are made of steel, but they make them out of ceramic materials. They make them out of, uh, silicon carbide. Uh, it's not air pressure because you can ring them in a vacuum. Uh, it does help to have a film between the two blocks, but you can ring blocks that are perfectly dry and get them to stick together. So, uh, it's suspected that it is an electronic type force gonna, of some kind. I was going to say, are you aware of hyperconjugation in organic chemistry? Hyperconjugation, it's like when every other main force has basically been like, that's no longer an issue. Like the only thing is like, it's like when it's kind of what you're saying, when everything else is measured, the only thing left to do yeah. is measure like friction. In hyperconjugation, if I remember, in like benzene rings, it's like when all the other like primary kind of movers and shakers of OCHEM are get rid of. It's like we're billionaires. When, yeah. when Elon Musk and Bill Gates pit at each other, eventually it comes down to pennies. It's like the very slight <laughs> force of like, like if you put a benzene yeah. ring on like a planar scale, the up and well, down. Well, the thing, the, the thing is, we also know they're they're fairly consistent about the distance between these. And uh, something I'm going to try to demonstrate here too is the the ringing force is only in length. You can slide them and they stay wrong. So. Uh, it's not like an adhesive, which because they're stuck together, you wouldn't be able to slide them back and forth. You can slide these back and forth and they still stick to one another. Um, these, these are not cooperating because I think the ends were damaged a little. Gauge uh, box that haven't been damaged can really support some stupidly high forces that way. Could that be used for construction in orbit? Roger. Did we lose Roger? Not really, because uh, seven inch. Roger's glitching in and out of reality. Roger, can you hear or see me? My internet connection is yeah. done. Yeah, I yeah I can I can. Mine's fine. Yeah, I have you. I I got a little message that said my internet is unstable. Yeah, it'll do that. From Zoom. Internet sucks. Um, okay, you're, now, now you're digging a little bit. Now I am. It says my... Yeah, your image is gone. Can you hear me? I haven't really had that much trouble. You know, maybe it's because it's Monday evening. Maybe. No, because... Yeah. yeah. Uh, are you back? You oh, there you are. There you are. Can you see me? Yeah, that, that must... It must have been a temporary bandwidth suck because yeah. you just came back. It's like yeah. you faded out for a little bit and, and then back to... Gucci. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, sorry. So you're saying but, uh, lengthwise? But, uh, yeah. In or, in order, yeah. In order for something to... Uh, uh, a surface to be flat enough to ring and stable enough to ring, uh, it's generally very massive. So it's not the sort of thing you would use in space. Okay. Uh, but because of the ringing, you can take these these blocks in in this kit and if you decide you want a standard that is 
6.1874 inches long, you know, inches long, you can assemble the page blocks and then you can take that into your shop and copy it with standard uh, machine shop techniques to make a permanent standard of that size. So this is what makes it possible for a company to decide they want a manufacturing partner that's halfway around the world. And uh. they're going to make pistons for the internal combustion engine you're building in Detroit. And when those pistons arrive, they actually fit because they have a gauge block set. And these things are calibrated. In fact, the reason these gauge blocks were so expensive is these are special gauge blocks. These were not just the gauge blocks you would use in your shop that were good to like maybe 50 micro inches. These are good to like 10 micro inches. These are the gauge blocks that you use to check your other gauge blocks to see if they're any good. Who watches the Watchmen? At least if you have it ruined. (laughs) I said, who watches the Watchmen? (laughs) Who gauges the gauge blocks? Well, well, and it turned there. There is there is a uh, an issue. That, well, there's a practice that we call traceability, and where this all comes from is the uh, NIST, the National Bureau of Standards. They maintain a lab, and uh, we would send this. In fact, after the uh, pickup truck incident, we sent the entire kit up to the next level lab. Tell us which ones can be saved. Tell us which ones need to be replaced and do what you have to do. And they recertify it. And even if you haven't left it in a pickup truck, then you do that every couple of years anyway, because uh, things that will change the length of these things. Okay. Well, temperature, Uh, a temperature difference of two degrees centigrade will throw these things out of tolerance. Jesus. So the NIST gauge block lab is temperature controlled yeah. to within two to within one degree Celsius centigrade. Wow. And you cannot do that with an ordinary air conditioning system and thermostat that you have to have a PID control system like a sous vide cooker for your climate control system. Yeah, it's probably, a very expensive and exotic way to do things. Probably need it like at the CDC or some shit. Uh, oh, even the CDC doesn't bother with this. This is this is a specific thing for very high precision uh, fixed uh, physical parts. Uh, when you bring the gauges in, presumably from a place that is not exactly sixty eight degrees Fahrenheit, which is a standard temperature that okay. these are calibrated That's for. That's what I was about to ask: is is there a standard temperature? It's sixty eight degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so it's in the lab, lab, there is an enormous block of metal. Uh, that they use for equalization. They take all the gauges and they lay them out and they leave them there for several hours so that their temperature can equalize with the temperature of the lab before they slap them on the on the gauge block comparator. And there is an additional... I'm going to take these apart before I drop something. Um, with the longer blocks, uh, just handling this like this in the course of moving it around the lab and putting it on the comparator and and doing it and wringing it and all, it will absorb enough heat from say, my hand, yeah, from your hand to change its length Fuck. And, and put it in air. Uh, the force of gravity, it's not starting at about the length of this one, this is a four-inch bar, they warn if you have a vertically oriented gauge block comparator, Fuck. when you sit the block up like this, the force of gravity is strong enough to compress it 
and take it out of out of tolerance. So you have to apply a corrective factor. Jesus. Now this is a steel block. Jesus Christ! <laughs> and its own weight will sag enough to throw it out of tolerance. <laughs> so is there is there a limit to? Or is this is this a dimensional thing? Like, so you lay it on its side, it's fine. Is there a limit to how big they can get to where even laying horizontally, the weight will compress? Or is there a way you can offset that? Well, there there are corrective measures that you can take. There there is a handbook. The uh, there is a handbook the NIST publishes about the care and feeding of your gauge blocks, uh, that describes all this stuff. It is a hundred and forty pages long. <laughs> How to handle your block. <laughs> yes. How, how, how to use gauge blocks. Fuck. 140 pages. Fuck. And uh, now one of the reasons they make blocks out of steel like these is that if the thing you're measuring is also made out of steel, it's a win. Because whatever errors you have because of things like well, the temperature it will, it will, go accordingly, will, yeah. will affect what you're measuring as well and they'll wash. But God forbid they it's make, not steel. They make they make gauge blocks out of other things. They uh, make them out of ceramic. Uh, they make them out of silicon carbide uh, because it's more durable. Because it's very easy to damage these faces. You see how little damage yeah. was done here, and that has been considered to completely ruin this. They couldn't even downgrade them to make them like a B grade gauge block that just, you would just use on the floor. They were junk, ruined. Just They're, junk. They, they are no longer useful as gauge blocks. The main reason that they kept them around is they use them for lapping and, and a few things that a really flat surface is useful for. Okay. Um, but like when I asked if you all had any of the gauge blocks that were ruined so I could do a little show and tell, they were like, oh, yeah, no problem. Um, that, Jesus. Because most people have never seen one of these, have no idea what they're for, and our entire civilization is only possible because these things exist. They are a foundational thing. These were invented in 1896 by a Swede named Carl Edward Johansson. And they revolutionized manufacturing because they made it possible. Once these things became popular, you didn't have to send a standard to your manufacturing partner anymore to make sure things would line up. All you had to send was drawings and numbers, and they could take their gauge block set, which is ultimately traceable to the same source as your gauge block set. It's like a... And, and their stuff would be the same size. It's like a weird kind of like encryption almost. Not really. Or like the of... opposite of encryption because right, it's well, like everything well, is public. Well, fuck uh, me. All right. Never mind. This podcast is over. Fuck you, Roger. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's that same. We have the same. We're looking at the same thing. Yeah. Back in, back, back in the good old days, everything came out of Paris. And, and these would ultimately all end up compared in some fashion or other to the standard yeah. meter well, that's, that yeah. was maintained in Paris. And ever since the 30s or 40s, I forget when they adopted the standard. Uh, actually, it had to be later than that because they use laser light. Uh, but we now have a standard definition for the meter that's in wavelengths of laser light. That's and hard. so anybody anywhere in the world can assemble a machine that will allow them to construct an accurate standard uh, length standard. And uh, so, no, so these no longer end up getting traced to something that had to be put on a boat and shipped across the Atlantic. Now they're now they go to NIST most likely, who has one of the machines that can do the optical interferometry and uh, make a master standard. That's what but, I was going to ask: is what happens if the master gets damaged? But I guess you just answered that question. 
Yeah, and that that's been a thing uh, right. of what happens with the Mac because these things change. If yeah. you do everything right, if you don't put it in a pickup truck, if you don't, you know, if 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 you don't screw around with it, if you don't actually use it and damage the ends, if you do, if you put it in a sealed box and exclude air so that it can't corrode, and you put it in a nice safe place in a refrigerator, in a few years it'll still change length. So. The steel, the the crystals in the steel lattice, the steel in, in, in the steel, uh, whatever they call it, matrix, yeah. move around. So because the, of th- <laughs> so how the fuck do we even? Yeah, so I feel like if we lose the prime, right? Because I remember reading that in physics. I remember that was like the that was like the first page of the first chapter. Was they just? I remember that blew my mind because they're they're like, how long is a meter? And I'm, I'm not a kid, mind you. I was like 22 in this class. And it was like a meter. It's like, actually, there's like a piece of metal in this lab. And I was like, oh, fuck, there's an actual meter. And then, of course, my mindset was like, there's going to be some terrorist that's like, I'm going to do the most damage to the world ever. <laughs> fuck the Twin well, Towers. Course, I'm going to go blow up that meter. <laughs> if, someone, if someone had blown up the standard meter back when we were still depending on it, there were several close copies kept by other major powers. What, the one treaty every country in the world has signed off on no matter how much they hate one another no matter how different they are is the standards treaty that defines how all these standards are maintained to traceability everybody there's like 168 signatories every country in the world has agreed that these things have to be maintained because otherwise you can't do international commerce. Well, even even yeah, even like Israel and fucking like Iran need to do that because how are like yep. guys, if we want to continue killing each other and blowing each other's kids up, like we need to have some standards for our artillery shells. Yeah, because like, we need to make sure that our bullets fit in your guns when we capture them. And, and vice versa. Yeah. And and they're all just nodding their heads. They're like, agreed, agreed. You know, how are we going to kill each other? But yeah, but. But okay. it's it's one of the most universal things, and because everybody has recognized the uh, the importance of it, uh, and and the thing is, you know, so at the turn of the twentieth century, it was almost all still standards in Paris. The, the length standard and the kilogram were the big ones, but there was a couple of others, and uh, the meter was finally retired. Yeah, and what they did, what they do with these is they make those standards of the most stable material they can think of, yeah. which is generally pure platinum. Hmm. You know how much a meter long block <laughs> like this, made of platinum, that is some costs? big dick energy. That is like <laughs> that is pimp. That's fuck fuck the challenge but even, of the ring. But even at that, the question of how they change over time uh, you, with how? subtle effects. Oh, I forgot to mention air pressure. If and, you take one of these well, to the top of a mountain where the air pressure is lower, they change length. Well, that's what I was going to say earlier when I said, is there going to, because I was thinking like, what if you take them into space and then you beat me to it and you said 68 degrees. But the next thing I thought was at sea level. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's an issue. Sea it's, level for who? Know, for Earth. Yeah, when 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 you when you're trying to achieve the level of accuracy these were designed for, then, like I said, everything's made of rubber. Yeah, it, it, it's like everything affects them, and so the control of the environment where you're using them becomes a much bigger deal than the manufacturing process by which they were made and delivered to you, because if you don't have the control temperature environment, these things aren't worth the metal they're made out of. Yeah, you're not getting you're not getting out of them what you paid for. So, uh, but but in this case, you know, like I said, these are mass, these are grade zero, 
which which is you know this the kit was uh, six thousand dollars. But what you use your grade zero blocks for is you take them out once in a while and you use the strength. You know, they, they have a machine called a gauge block comparator. I have no idea how it works. Uh, but they use it to make sure that your test gauge block is the same length as the good one. And you take the good ones every, one, every couple of years and you send them to a lab that is a notch up closer to the master standard and the master standard used to be the standard meter in paris now it's uh, some lab that's closer that has the interferometer that can count off the wavelengths of laser light and tell whether it's the right length or not um so you know that's how it all it all flows down to the shop floor where you are either using a b-grade uh, set of these that is not as accurate. They also make them that have more durable. They're, they're, you know, these are made from metrology. The, the metallurgy has been uh, refined to make them as stable as possible, even though they're made out of steel. But some of them have hardened ends mm-hmm. so that you don't damage them as easily when you're ringing them and when you're using them to compare stuff. And then a lot of times what you use those for is to make fixed gauges, like go, no-go gauges, um, that are used on the shop floor for every piece just to make sure that your quality control is up. And those get brought back into the lab every once in a while, compared against these, and it all flows back uphill to the National Bureau of Standards. Uh, and that is the same for the, the for length here, but it's also the same as weight. It's just more obvious with weight that you have to do that because you can't just eyeball something and tell how much it weighs. We're used to the idea of eyeballing something until you like, say this thing is off but man it's perfect yeah yeah it's yeah it's like what's wrong actually um my micrometer also reports that it's perfect the lab that knows what it's doing not so much uh let's see in in my mind these like higher orders of like labs I imagine that the yeah. members start to wear like Illuminati cloaks and you get to the, you get to the, <laughs> as you get to the inner temple. Yeah. I, this is a, an ordinary metal shape from the hardware store that I used to make something that I then took apart because it didn't work. So according to this, it's perfect. It's exactly a quarter inch thick. Yeah. According to this, it's four thousandths of an inch too thick. Okay, so it gets and now. Now is it actually a four thousandth, or can you get something that goes? Is that what you're getting to? Well, what I'm getting to is that uh, you use these to calibrate. They they make other measuring devices that are just as obviously. You have to have something that can tell whether this thing is the right length or not. Generally, by comparing it to another gauge block, uh, but you also have more general purpose machines like the Super Mike. Uh, which you would use to measure things like this. And yeah, you can get them up to uh, 10, uh, 10,000th uh, of an inch, a hundred thousandth in a special circumstances, because there you're talking about all the temperature control and all the environmental factors and shit. And at that level, this is just like, you know, this, this might as well be a two by four. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. We, uh, we get used to thinking of things. Uh, some of the stuff you get at the hardware store is really surprisingly accurate. Uh, if you buy a drill bit and drill a hole with it, 
uh, with a drill press so that it's not wobbling and everything, that hole will generally be within a thousandth of an inch. Mm-hmm. They're they're super accurate. Now, now getting it where you want it, that's is a different you. story. Yeah, that's on you. <laughs> but uh, one of the things you can do to register stuff is you stack two pieces of metal on top of one another and drill a hole through them. Well, then you can put a pin in that hole and you can relocate them within a thousandth of an inch repeatedly to do other operations on them that depend on that's that's one of the kinds of things that those artisans were doing when they were hand making firearms and stuff like that is little tricks like that where you have some operations that are inherently very accurate mm-hmm. like drilling a hole drilling a hole has been pretty damn accurate since the beginning of the 19th century maybe even a little earlier uh if you had the specialty stuff but the fact that you can drill a hole and put a pin in it and have that little slop is something you can use because you can use that to do other operations that make sure things are the same shape. Nothing is real. <laughs> I don't know what to Believe, that, that, that when we started getting into this stuff, then yeah, that was like the first thing. And, and honestly, we still don't have the air conditioning system that we really should have. We don't have the temperature control to, to, to make some of this stuff work. Um, so the, I, I, remember, um, I remember seeing one thing that said like they figured out the measurement. This might have been what you were saying. But in that physics book, it was like the measurement of a meter. They were like, yeah, now it's the distance that light travels like every 1,667 rotations of a fluoride atom. And I was like, who the fuck yeah. even it, was, was like, hold on, I got an idea. It, it's actually, it's actually uh, a number of wavelengths of the laser light uh, for, the, for the meter. Uh, time is super accurately measured now because they're using atomic clocks and they're literally measuring the number of times an individual atom vibrates. But so, but even, but even, even with like the the standard blocks and shit, how do we not know that? Because right, if we know the universe is expanding, is everything expanding? But it's expanding at the. Are we expanding relative? To, like, are the very things we're using to measure the things that we use to measure? Are those changing? They could. They they could be. All we know is that and we'd never these know. things stay consistent with respect to one another. If okay. we follow the rules okay. and we're careful. Then these things fit together. So yeah, you know, we can we can make two gauge blocks on opposite sides in the world, starting with an optical interferometer that tells us, yep, this is intolerance. And when we meet up in St. Louis and compare them, then they'll be the same length to within our tolerances of you know a hundred thousand. You know, one basically one part in several hundred thousand is so, is what they aim for. Now, this kit has several six inch blocks, so you we can use these little helper doodads to assemble a bar that's that long now once you do that you've got several ring films that are adding to the length a little bit about a micro inch each it's not going to be as accurate but but again it's like what are you aiming for the convenience of these kits is that you can build you can you can basically make a tool of any arbitrary length to whatever number of ten thousandths of an inch you want yeah pretty closely well, and it will fit now, but again, it's not going to be exact. You're going to, you're going to be within, you know, maybe a few hundred thousandths of an inch if you want, but you can get a better fit than that. If you use those old techniques and, and hone things against one another to shape them to where they fit well together 
and not worry about the exact measurement as much as whether they've been formed with it, to match. One another. Well, that's what I was going to say is it seems like if the universe is expanding and maybe like the fucking coefficient of like Hawking <laughs> decay is changing, how would we know? And as you said, it wouldn't matter because it's they all work within relative to each other. But isn't that a funny full circle? In a way, it doesn't matter because these are our artisan well, pieces. Yeah. These are our artisan pieces. Well, and there and there are several competing things too, which we uh, which we know work uh, in different ways that agree with one another. Uh, so that's a good thing because you know we we know that if we make these things, uh, they're consistent to an ex- to a certain extent, but also. The mechanism by which laser light is made has nothing whatsoever to do with any of this matter shit. Okay. That is entirely a quantum electromagnetic phenomenon that's based on completely different physical principles. And the laser light method of measuring the blocks agrees with measuring the blocks against one another. Uh, The other thing that is striking is the, uh, the mechanisms by which atomic spectra emerge. You know, you, you get this yeah, yeah. Uh, array of colors that each atom makes when it's excited yeah, it or that absorbs when and down, shining yeah. through it. Those depend very uh, sensitively on certain physical constants, what they call the magic numbers, uh, things like Planck's constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of constants that describe how easy it is to make an electric and a magnetic field. Yeah. Uh, and if those numbers were different even slightly, then those atomic spectra would look completely different. And what we know, this is how we know, when we look at the light from a quasar Mm -hmm. 10 billion light years away, that space has the same properties that it does here. Because those atomic spectra would look completely different if it if any of those constants were even slightly different. Yeah. So that gives us a pretty good idea that some of those physical constants are very stable and have been the same for a very long time. Now they do suspect that like in the early, early moments of the big bang, the space itself may not have existed in the form that we think of it today. And, uh, and, and so things may have been evolved, but, but eventually everything kind of froze out. Yeah. And, and since those early days, the universe has been extremely consistent, but then there is, why is it expanding? Why are all the galaxies flying apart from one another? And that is still a question that is not solidly answered. You know, you, know, you, got, you ask 10 physicists what they think dark energy is, which is, which is the catch-all name for whatever is making the universe fly apart, yeah. and you will get 10 different answers. Nobody knows. Yeah. I mean, I mean you will get more agreement on dark, mat- dark matter, and that's – nobody knows what it is. Um, but – but, but as far as like, yeah, as if the whole ex- universe was expanding uh, to that, well, it would have to be doing it in a very precise way. Uh, otherwise, a lot of stuff that works wouldn't work. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that that's where you, you get into some of the stuff that is really you – know, they, uh, they recently did for mass, like last year, what they did for length back in – the 50s or 60s, I guess it was, and came up with a standard that wasn't a block of metal in Paris. And I read the paper on what they did, and I have no fucking clue how it works. Uh, okay. I mean, I, was- I don't, I don't, I, I cannot begin to tell you what they did. They, but they've somehow built an apparatus that uh, can tell you how much your thing weighs or how, how, how massive it is 
based on some way that it affects fundamental constants of the universe. And it's a thing that you can duplicate without having to go back to Paris and measure the damn standard kilogram. So it's like, uh, that was the last one. Do you think that, do you think maybe whoever made it up was just so smart that they knew no one was going to question them? So they're like, trust me, this is it. And everyone's (laughs) like, fuck, I guess I'm too dumb to know. Well, I'm not in a position to say. Yeah. Uh, I, I, do, I do know a lot of smart people who are going, yay. We were try- that, I, I had read an article before they did it about some of the methods they were trying. I know one of the, one, one of the things they were pursuing was extremely perfect silicon spheres because uh, they could make an extremely pure silicon crystal yeah. and they could make an extremely accurate sphere and measure its diameter very accurately of course, temperature and all that shit because gauge blocks, right? But using that, they could relate the number of atoms in that sphere to its weight when you weighed it. And that could have been a basis of a standard of mass that you could duplicate without having to go back to the original you know, platinum block. Whatever they did is much more subtle than that. And I didn't understand it at all. Uh, one of these days, I need to ask my dad if he has any idea what they did. Um, but the, the the main point is is that we did get away from ha- being dependent on that block of metal, and, and and that was a big deal because yes, it was a big worry uh, in a lot of uh, circles how stable that block of metal is. I mean, there's a lot of research, and in fact, they're keeping the standard kilogram. Because now that they don't need it as the standard anymore, they want to study it and see how it changes over time. Now that they don't need it as now that they're not using it as the standard anymore, they can actually study it to see how stable it actually is. And uh, you know, it's like, oh man, this is it. It gets it gets weird. That's so- now now what is the actual. What is the practical? And I know the I'll probably have the answer shit on my face because I would imagine as technology gets more and more uh, advanced, we need these uh, tolerances. But like, what is the purpose of getting within like man? Earlier when you said that the edge of that block was within six millionths of an inch, I was gonna make a double. I was gonna make a two in one joke about how it must have been designed by Nazis. Six million, but then also because Nazis were so precise, but. Hey, <laughs> but, well, uh, a, a, a lot of uh, the early work in metrology was done by the Germans. That's, you know, you yeah. got to take the wins where you can take them, I guess. But uh. yeah, although although it was a Swede who invented gauge blocks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, in, in fact, the interesting little thing that I ran across was uh, when he applied for a patent, uh, Joe uh, Johansson uh, couldn't get it at first because the government didn't understand what he had done. And he had to appeal his rejection, and hey, uh, in hey order morons. to <laughs> right, it's yeah, hey morons. So the patent o- the patent office didn't understand what he had, what he had invented, and you know this is like uh, it is not really an exaggeration to say that these are one of the most important inventions in man's entire history. Yeah, because they have made a lot of modern technology possible. Without these, we would still be depending on physical transport of standards and artisans of high skill to make them. So you would have a staffing problem. Uh, 
you you would not have a lot of economies of scale and efficiencies. These make it possible to quickly do things that would would have been nearly impossible without them. Uh, like I said, you 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 have an engineer makes a drawing, and there's a thing that's got to be accurate to a ten thousandth of an inch, and it's got to be some arbitrary weird number. And you just go to the stage, the age box set, and it's like Legos. You just put it together, boom, okay. Give it to the machinist, make us a permanent standard this length. Yeah. And he does his thing. You put the gauge box back in their box, put that back in the safe, and now you've got a tool that you can use on the shop floor to make the stuff, the, 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 the shape that you need it and all. And none of that was possible uh, before these things were invented. They, they went around the world in the first decades of the 20th century they went from no one knew what the fuck they were to everybody had them and an, oh and an interesting thing you may know that uh or a lot of people don't know this but the inch is officially defined as 25.4 millimeters exactly the the Why? inch is defined in terms of millimeters okay without a bunch of decimal points out in the far end it's just the reason for that is the biggest company that was making gauge blocks. Originally, all the gauge blocks were metric because they started in Europe. Well, this company decided because they wanted to market to Britain and the USA to start making English imperial unit gauge blocks in inches. But the US and Britain had different standards for the inch. One of them was a little more than 25.4 millimeters, and one of them was a little less. And the difference was way out in the fifth decimal point. So this guy who ran this company said, fuck it, threw his hands in the air and said, we're just going to make it 25.4 millimeters. <laughs> and all the, all the other gauge block makers in the world decided to adopt the same standards so that their products would be compatible. And then in the early 30s, first Britain and then the United States relented and adopted the same standard themselves because that's what everyone was using. Because ultimately you had to use gauge blocks to standardize things and the gauge blocks were being made to that standard. And saying that your standard was off in the fifth decimal place because national pride or whatever wasn't going to fly. What the fuck? So it's... <laughs> It's so private industry for the win, <laughs> right? It's like it, it gets to that point where you're just like, fuck it. This is what we're doing. It's like when you look at the border between Canada and the U.S., it's like they start on like the West and they're like, eh, and they're just like, fuck it. Just straight line. That's what it is. Everyone shut 40th up. Barrel, 40th parallel, it's, it's, whatever it it's is. 25.44. Yeah. So help me God. I'll pull this car over. Like it's everyone's just like, all right, fine. All right. It's 25.44. All right, man. But, but yeah, the, the, but the thing is, is that having these standards is what makes it possible for, uh, well, like, like think about all the shit that went into a Saturn V yeah. for the Apollo program, all the different places that all that stuff was made and they fitted it all together. And for the most part, it worked the first time. So you, 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 you don't do that now in aerospace, they're using the grade zero blocks. They're doing it real careful. Okay. It's, it's, it's not like, but, but actually, uh, uh, Johansson's company was in trouble, uh, because of, uh, I think depression came along and he was saved by Ford Motor Company. They, uh, they invest, they, they bought it out and invested in it, uh, in order to keep that business, uh, afloat when it was having financial troubles. Uh, so 
you know, this is something that the early, some of the early manufacturers recognize the importance of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, like I keep saying, it, it, the modern world would look very different if these things didn't exist. Um, the reason that this fiberglass ruler is so accurate is that a whole bunch of machines were calibrated so that when they put the ink and the copy, you know, the re-etch resist and all the stuff on this, it's it, very accurate. It made, and this yeah. all, and, and in a very real sense, this all goes back to gauge blocks. Fuck. That, that, that's how they keep things synchronized all over the world. So that when we make, like I said, you know, you make a piston in Korea and put it in an engine block that was made in Detroit, it fits. So, now, now, what is what is the need for these taller? Like, if we get past like a hundred thousandths of an inch, like, what is that? Is that laser technology? Is that future computer chips? Well, when you when you get past uh, micro inches, you're you're really in a realm where uh, solid matter no longer is yeah. capable of maintaining them anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, so there you really are in a realm where uh, atomic forces yeah. are are starting to. Uh, intrude on things well it's like microprocessors we talked about how uh, they're getting the features to be so small that they're acting more like a line of atoms than a wire Yeah, and that's one of the problems they're running up against so when you start looking for physical tolerances better than one part in a few hundred thousand it's very hard to find any kind of, uh, of solid matter at all that can maintain those tolerances in a realistic situation it's going to stretch like taffy as, as far as uh, you know, the temperature and then the pressure and the, the forces are going to squish it and stretch it, and uh, you know, it, it's just so it becomes impossible. So really, these things have the tolerances they do because they are at the limits of what you can do with physical matter. Uh, you know, the the next best thing to a gauge block is an optical interferometer. But really what we use the optical interferometer for is to calibrate gauge blocks because it's much more practical to use a gauge block in a practical situation, like, yeah. you know, in a plant to make sure the parts you're making are the right size, to make sure the machines are calibrated. It's much easier to use gauges made of matter than it is to try and use optical techniques. Um, and even those have a limit because uh, the wavelength of light is about you know, in the 500 nanometer range, give it, you know, depending on whether it's drifting toward blue or red, well, that's half a micrometer. So that, you know, the wavelength of light is about where you are when you're talking about the accuracy of these blocks. Now, there are techniques that you can use to go beyond that, and they have to use those doing integrated circuits, for example, because they're doing things like 12 nanometer processes and God knows what. So they're using... Uh, shorter wavelength light and all kinds of diffraction techniques and fancy shit. Um, but you know, you, 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 you really reach a point where uh, just maintaining the environmental controls to keep solid matter from distorting uh, becomes impossible if, if you're looking for more precision. And oddly uh, that happens uh those tolerances still represent a very large multiple of the uh, distance between atoms in a solid. Uh, yeah. the, the, ringing, the ringing gap between two gauge blocks that have been rung together 
is about a micro inch. But that's about 100 times greater than the distance between atoms in a solid. That's why no one is really sure how ringing works, because yeah. it acts more like an electrical phenomenon than anything else. But if it's electrical, it's not even closely related to the atomic shell forces that hold matter together in normal circumstances. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, you know, it, it, it's, a, and it's kind of hard to get uh, devices in that, in, inside that uh, millionth of an inch gap to try and probe what's going on. In yeah. There. I was, yeah. It's, I'm just, it could be what, like, I don't, it's weird. Cause yeah, it's like the very, we're getting to this, like, point where everything's like we're trying to like measure sandcastles but like the 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 tide is rising and like the things we're measuring are also made out of sand and it's like everything is getting wet and goopy and it's like does it just turn to like is that the next paradigm like maybe we're moving out of like physical specifications and into like light patterns or something yeah well that's that's the standard now if you yeah, when, yeah, when you yeah, get yeah, that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. When you get past the point where matter can hold it, then your next step is an optical interferometer, and and you're comparing it against the wavelength of electromagnetic radiation, which is constant, at least as far as we know. Uh, yeah, but like I said, if if the whole universe was expanding at a certain rate, well, then all those constants have to be tracking with it because yeah. it seems to be it's consistent to within a stupid number of significant figures. Yeah, you know, and. Uh, uh, the thing about light is that uh, our measurement of time and distance is related, and it's very closely related to the speed of the light. And we know the speed of light to within like 12 decimal places. I mean, it's just, yeah, we know it stupidly accurately. And that means we can, re we can measure time down to just stupidly short intervals and, yeah. you know. Femto, uh, pico. You know, it's like you know, the, you know, the, it's all you know. Change. We can tell that the uh, the length of the day is changing by so many milliseconds, you yeah. know, per year, and yeah. all that stuff yeah, like the, this. The moon, and that's not even that's not even at the outside. We measure the distance to the moon within three inches. Yeah, and we know the moon moves at what is it, half an inch every year? It moves half an inch farther away. Yeah, shit. because because of tidal drag. Basically, it's trading off uh, the speed. The day is getting longer, and the moon is spiraling out, taking that energy of the Earth's rotation and using it to climb higher. And it's been doing See, and that that's the problem with that's the problem with rotational welfare. Is you got these bottom feeders <laughs> who just slow down the rest of us, <laughs> but um, but but yeah, we can measure that, and and uh, that gets the thing of. Speaking of measuring distance, uh, they left all these cute little retro reflectors on the moon when mm -hmm. they did the Apollo and some of the Soviet uh, rover missions. And we can use those to measure the distance from the telescope to the retro reflector yeah. beep, beep. with about yeah. that much error. Yeah. Now, I was reading an article about that, and they said that one of the things they had to take into account was land tides. Oh, the, fuck. The land the that the observatory world. is sitting on, the is solid shifting. ground yeah, is goes up and down. Oh, tides! <laughs> <The> tides. <laughs> nothing is nothing is fucking 
There is no standard. The earth, well, the earth isn't solid. This it has is, a liquid core. You this know, is all, all the it's all, are floating. It's all a sham. This is all facade. This idea of standards and constants. This is all bullshit. Nothing's constant. Well, the standards are. I mean, it's like, you know, that's all basically. And, and we can get that accuracy for those things because that's electromagnetic radiation and time. I'm, and I'm, we can measure those much more accurately than we can measure physical length by comparing. Uh, you know, the, the, the length of a solid object is squishy. Yeah. But light and time are much more consistent. Or is it like land tides, which I can't wrap my any I'm going to write that down. But that's because <laughs> that's about to fucking blow my brain out like Kurt Cobain. Woo. But for land tides or things where you're measuring something like with a thousandth of, you know, and it's like this says it's perfect. This says it's perfect. This says it's clearly not. What if we just aren't measuring light to a far enough decimal point? What if we were like, it's perfect, but what if we got out to like a thousand decimal points and we actually found out that there was like light tides? Well, it's, you know, uh, general relativity has effects on uh, on electromagnetic radiation too. One of the things, one of the practical applications of general relativity uh, is that the GPS system has to measure time so accurately that the fact that time doesn't flow at the same rate in geosynchronous orbit or you're at the it's not geo it's it's a little lower than that but where the satellites are the force of the earth's gravity is less and general relativity says that that means time travels at a slightly different rate and they have to take that into account because they are measuring the path length from the satellite to your car so accurately that that difference would cause an error in your position calculation. I was I was reading something about like, I don't remember what, I don't think it was the U2, but it was something about like stability. And they found that it wasn't stable over certain parts of the world. And it's because when they like mapped it gravitationally, they were like, fuck, this thing's so fragile that, like, if it goes over yeah. this part of the world, it's like, oh, tugs a little too hard. Well, the magnetic field is like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Earth's gravitational field is that bad, but, you know, the moon's gravitational no, if, field is that bad. If, if you map the uh, gravity of the world, there are parts where, I mean, granted, it's yeah. like it's fractions of a fraction, but there are parts where it's yeah. slightly over mountains and over the sea. Now, and, we, we have sold anal, uh, laboratory analytical balances that had as part of their setup, you had to put where they are in the world fuck. so that they could apply a corrective factor for the uh, force of the Earth's uh, gravitational field as it's slightly different in different parts of the I world. I can't handle this right now, Roger. <laughs> I am sober and I can't handle this. I am. This is, this is ripping my brain apart. So fuck, are there things like... So I was thinking like, you know, it's like flat Earth, right? If you look at the Earth and it's flat out to a number of decimal points, and it's like, I think it was Asimov who did a little short story about it. My buddy Trey Carney showed it to me, and it's talking about like the 23rd decimal place where it's like, for like the first 20 decimal points, the Earth looks, whether it's flat or whether it's rounded, it looks the same. And it's not until you get that last part that you can see it starts to turn. Well, I started thinking, what if the actual universe Uh. itself is on like the surface of a sphere? And what if that has an effect over it's like we think it's just one big thing, but it's actually on a surface. Then I start thinking, what if like parts of the universe aren't expanding as fast as the other parts? Are there like Coriolis effects for us looking at light from quasars and pulsars and redshifts and blue shifts? 
I need I need some marijuana. That will help me. That that is that is one of the things that they are currently studying. Uh, the way that they figured out how old the universe is. If you recall, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, this, but I remember when uh, 10 billion and 20 billion were equally good guesses for the age of the universe. And uh, in the early 20th century, 21st century, they narrowed narrowed that down to 13.6. And the way that they did that was by studying the cosmic background radiation. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out that it's modeled. Uh, there is a slight variation God damn it. in the pattern. And the size of the variations has to be within the size of the universe at that time uh, when we're looking at that radiation because in order for a, a model to all be the same intensity – it had to be within range for light to communicate to keep it the same intensity. And so it's you know, basically the size of the modeling in the background radiation determines the maximum possible age of the universe. And this is a, like a really super elegant argument that came out of nowhere as far as I, I kind of understand it, but it's like, how did they fucking think of this? Um, and but but it comes down to uh, one part of the universe to communicate for one part of the universe to communicate with another for for like for example for a feature in space to all be the same for it to be blinking okay uh, it has to be small enough for light to communicate mm-hmm. across it in the period of a blink yeah so it can synchronize itself yeah and and that's how we can tell that if a thing is blinking at a certain rate it can't be bigger than a certain size yeah and that's what blows people's minds about some of these like really distant phenomena that we can tell are 10 billion years away and we can see them from here but they can't be any bigger than our solar system because they change brightness in a synchronized way in a matter of hours so that means that they you know something has to be pouring out just stupidly incredible amounts of energy from a very small object and we can tell that from here because that that's the only way that such a physical process could work we don't, even if we don't know what the process is we can tell what its limits are and you know what it's what it's principle you know what uh, what its parameters how much energy it's putting out what that density is and in a lot of cases it's just like well there's only a few things that can explain this and most of them are black holes so <laughs> Fuck. It's, yeah, right. And then there's, well, no, I was going to say, yeah, I think I brought this up with you. Like, how do we know that, you know, it's like if you, if you had a camera that didn't have a high enough frame rate and like, you you know, I shot a, a bullet or whatever, you could only capture or you could never capture it in that frame, right? It would be like, well, you don't know what's happening beneath that frame rate. That's what I was thinking is like, I think it was with you. I asked this too. What if the speed of light isn't like the smallest possible space is like, the speed of light over Planck time because it's the fastest thing over the shortest time. So that has to be the small space. But what yeah, if but, something happens? But the Planck distance is way smaller than anything we can measure. So we, we, we don't really have any way to probe that at the moment. Yeah. And, and, and it's kind of uh, doubtful with currently conceivable technology that we will. Um, I mean, fuck, we're still trying not to get the, we're trying to wipe the rust off of our gauge blocks. Like, yeah. 
Yeah. It's it's like we left the gauge blocks in the fucking pickup truck. So, you know the, the, the LIGO, the laser uh-huh. interferometer gravitational observatory, they uh-huh. can detect black holes colliding and all that. Uh-huh. Those signals that you get this these thing is miles long. L shaped thing. So they're measuring this mile long thing against this miles long thing. Mm-hmm. And the distance change that they are measuring is like one quarter of the diameter of a proton. Fuck. <laughs> it is like, how are they fucking doing that? Uh, you know, and and there were, and I read an article, but they were even like, oh, yeah, you know, if there was a collision like this in the Milky Way, we probably wouldn't be able to study it because it would swamp the dynamic range of our instrument. It would be too loud. They built this thing to study shit that was happening 10 billion light years away. <laughs> I can't handle this. I really, I'm. But you know, this is this is the thing, though. When you go, when you go, you start looking at things like uh, Apollo denialism and the flat earthers and all. It's like there is so much like this, and it all fits together so perfectly, and it all works so well. And in fact, so much of our world wouldn't even be possible if none, if if any of that wasn't true. Yeah, that. It's like, okay, I understand. It makes you uncomfortable to think that we are in this infinitesimal speck of dust hanging in the middle of a vacuum uh, in the middle of nowhere, and the whole universe is 50 orders of magnitude bigger than we are. But you know what? If that's not the case, you got a whole shitload of explaining to do yeah. as to why things work. Yeah. Because it's not why things don't work. It's not why, you no, know, but it's no, things work. Yeah. And, Stupidly precise things work reliably, and uh, and and you have to deal with that. You know, it's it's these me- measurements from satellites and all. Uh, everything adds up. Yeah, you know, it, it's you know, if if it doesn't, and there are a few things like dark energy. Dark energy drives people nuts because we don't know what it is. We don't know why the universe is expanding, but that is a very different thing to not understand than whether the earth is flat or round. I mean, those two things are not similar levels of doubt. You can't put them together. You can't be like, (laughs) all right, you know what? Like, I don't understand calculus. So no wonder I can't tie my shoes. And it's like, no, bro. Like, yes, they're on the spectrum of things you don't understand, but those are not the same. Yeah, and, and so it, it's yeah. This this is the thing is that there are worlds out there of of things like this is why I wanted to show you these. Yeah, uh, you know, the, today's entire talk was to get to the to the gauge blocks and the magic sticking together, and we don't know after using these industrially for 120 years why they stick together when we ring them. But it's a very useful thing that we use every day, and if someone ever does figure it out, they probably got a Nobel Prize waiting for them. Roger, let's figure it out because now I'm curious. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me the answer when you're like, "Why do they work?" I was trying to guess it. I was not expecting no one knows. It's one of those things that blows people's minds. It's like you can tell whenever people are being taught about gauge blocks, you can tell the guy, whoever is teaching about gauge blocks, they are just waiting to get to the point where they can say, and we don't know why they stick together. Yeah. Because you're like, Ser- no, seriously, why do they stick? No, we don't. We really don't know. We use it every day, but we don't know why it works. See, And it was like, how can we not know why gauge blocks stick together? That That's, you know, but 
it's just one of those things. Just, it, just and, does and, it. it just does it, right? It's, it's almost kind of like the consciousness, right? Like the hard question. Like how does three and a half pounds of protoplasm create thoughts and humor? And it's like, it gets to a point where you're like, like we should find it out, but it also doesn't matter, right? It's like, it's, if it's like, yeah. if sexual intercourse, it will create another one. Like you don't need to know how to build it. It just... <laughs> It just happened. Well, and the thing is, you know, there's there's a progression that has happened with everything that humans have come to understand, where you first understand that it happens. Yeah. Don't and that know it's why. possible. Fine. And that it's consistent. Yeah. yeah. And then later you learn how and why it happens. Like the full Before drive. you can learn how it happens, you have to know that it happens. And you have to be you have you know, you, you go through this period when you're just observing it. Yeah. And you know, eventually the pieces fall together and, and you come up with a way to explain it uh, that, you know, that, that maybe makes sense. Yeah. The, the, the number of things that have been explained in the, the last 20 years has, has been astonishing. Uh, now, you got to remember when I was a kid, I had a I had a book about the planets you know, that had had a, a an yeah, artist's impression that, yeah. of the surface of each planet. And that's what they were. They were artists' impressions. Yeah. You know, there were drawings, like cartoon drawings, because that's all we had. Humans had never sent a probe to the surface of another planet. By the by the late sixties we had actually sent a couple to the moon right before the Apollo program. But as far as Mars, Venus, all them crap, we had no idea what they looked like. And we were and we were dead wrong about almost all of them when we actually got there. Uh the thing about colliding black holes, colliding neutron stars, the, Li- the LIGO thing. Now, there's there's two observatories. There's LIGO and there's another one in Europe. Lucifer. And one, yeah, and one day they got a uh, a signal that didn't look like two black holes colliding. It was different. And they realized that this was theoretically similar to what they would expect two neutron stars to, to look like when they're colliding. Now, there's a difference, though, between a black hole and a neutron star. You can see a neutron star because yeah. it's not a black hole. Not so they started black, yeah. to realize that this might be something that they could find with an optical telescope. So they had two observatories. They were fortunately both online at the same time. So they could uh, they had a record of the time signal. So they yeah. And so they could reduce it where to a ring. Yeah, a parallax. They could tell that it had to come from some point on a ring yeah. around the the uh, the well, yeah. ring around the Earth, a ring around the universe. Yeah. And so they went looking for it, uh, with a couple of educated guests. They found it. And what was interesting about that was there's always been a mystery about where the heavy metals like platinum and uranium yeah, and yeah. gold come from. Yeah, the second. And yeah. this one observation was loaded with atomic spectra for these heavy elements. And they realized that that, that, one, that one observation single-handedly explained where all of those heavy elements in the universe came from. It was, you know, the, it, it took something that had been a complete mystery and closed the book on it because you could calculate the frequency of which these collisions were likely to happen and look at this one collision that we had observed and say, this is how much it created. This is how many of these things it created. 
we can integrate this over the length of the, uh, over the, the time span of the universe and say, yep, yep, that explains where all the gold came from. Fuck. And that 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 happened in the twenty teens. Yeah. That. The, oh fuck yeah! I was gonna say yeah because I right, yeah that was yeah. Because there's that they know the first round of supernovas, right? That's what bumped us up to helium. Yeah, they know that. And yeah, then it's, yeah, well, yeah. The, the, well, the, yeah, the first the first rounds of supernovas get you to iron. Yeah, uh, but yeah, because because when the star is dying, it starts to you know, it, it goes from burning hydrogen to burning helium, yeah. which gets you up to carbon, which gets you up to nitrogen, the heavier elements, up to iron. And the problem is when you fuse iron, it takes energy instead of releasing energy. Yeah. So after iron, you get bupkis until the implosion. And the implosion creates such high pressures that yeah. you get some higher level yeah. elements out of it. But none of the theoretical models could account for the amount of these elements mm-hmm. that, that we see are actually here on Earth yeah. where we can study them. Yeah. And, you know, with this one observation of a neutron star collision billions of light years away, it was like, oh, that's where it came from. It's like, when you know, the, the, the age of the universe, 13.6 billion years. It used to be like, well, it's probably at least 10 and it might be as much as 20. And that was considered very learned because you got to remember when Edwin Hubble started doing his sky surveys, no one even knew that anything existed beyond the Milky Way. Yeah, island universes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're like, what yeah. the fuck is that? Is that another galaxy? <laughs> like bullshit. And yeah, it's it's like, is that is that a galaxy like ours? Yeah, right. That was like Christopher and, Columbus going across the ocean. Like bullshit. This is India. Then you have like the Hubble Deep Field, and it's like yeah. not only there are a lot of galaxies, there's a there's whole there's metric a fuck ton of galaxies. Yeah, and the ultra deep. <laughs> there's the ultra deep field, and then I think they did the extreme deep field, and it's just like, it's just. It's just ammo for smoking pot when you're 20. That's all. It's going deeper. And then there's even more. And then it's, yeah. But it's, I remember learning that in astronomy. It was like, it was like a type of supernova. It was like a hypernova or something. And it's like in an instant, like part of the core, it was like the core of the core or something. It went from the size of Jupiter to the size of like a marble in like, you know, in like an attosecond. And then what happened was, is the whole thing collapsed inwards. But then when when it would collapse inwards and when the innermost sphere would hit itself, right, it would start, it would send a shockwave of equal, uh, an equal and opposite uh, pressure, I guess, in the opposite direction or an equal and opposite shockwave. But the, the, the outside of the star hadn't finished collapsing yet. So it was like when a light turns green and everyone starts going. But this, so that was coming back out at the same speed that that one was coming in, and it was just that like gang bang of supernovas that were like this is this that was like a theoretical of how we could get past iron. But that was in 2010, so that was pr- probably before the discovery. So fuck, I'm old now. Yeah, they were well. They were they were trying to work it out. Yeah, and it was it yeah. was just not. You know, they were trying different scenarios, yeah. and it was just not. Adding up. Yeah, they and said they that could. That happens a yeah, lot. That you know, like... the, uh, the, the thing about science is that science isn't always about having the correct explanation or about it working. Sometimes it's about worst. asking the right question and waiting until you have enough information to to form a theory that you can test and that you can that, that then you can say. You know, sometimes it all comes together like that, and you can say, "Well, uh, now that we've seen this, which we had never seen before." 
we can say, well, there's this many neutron stars in the balance. Okay, so this frequency yeah. is like, okay, that that explains where all uh, these heavy elements yeah. came from. Yeah. And that doesn't happen too often. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of amazing when it does. Uh, but the, the bigger thing that people don't appreciate about science and engineering is, again, things like this. You know, th- this this is so ordinary and yet yeah. it is so special yeah yeah it, 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 it's it's hard to wrap your head around yeah um it was a little easier for me because i did some finite element analysis work back in the in the aughts when i was playing with uh alternative home construction and when you do a finite element analysis on a structure it exaggerates all of the uh stress uh things and you know the the changes in dimension and the stresses it, it so so you can see how your structure is deforming it magnifies those deformations when it does the animation so you can kind of see the rubberiness of solid matter um, in a computer simulation but the the thing is again most people don't even know these things exist and they're fundamental to our entire modern world i didn't i mean i knew from there's like that example yeah i've spent my entire life studying you know working in a field that's concerned with measurement and i didn't know they existed until a few years ago so you know unless you have some reason to work with them then you've probably never seen one yeah Uh, yeah right it's so i was i was thinking of like um so like when we learned that in astronomy and this was like this was like august 2010 when i learned that and they were like yeah the that outwards colliding and that inwards colliding and they're like that could explain the creation but they're like that could only that only creates a little bit per hypernova and so it couldn't do the whole thing but then i got thinking as you were saying looking out at these external elements well then i was so we can look at oh we can look at the atomic spectra of shit and see which planets have oxygen or cart or uh, organic molecules what if what if we could find the limit to which naturally what like the upper limit of of naturally occurring heavy elements what if we could start creating synthetic elements that were still stable but just can't happen by accident like like element 250 but then what if we could start looking out at like nebula and shit or seeing other planets and seeing if we could get the atomic spectra of these going off and would that mean there's another art there's another intelligent civilization nearby because that's the only way you could get element 250 well oh, fuck it actually it's, star. It's, Never mind. now that we have the neutron star thing uh you're pretty much going to get everything possible as a neutron star falls apart because it's the opposite of taking small elements and combining them into bigger ones. There you have what amounts to a giant atomic nucleus and it's unstable. So it's falling apart. It's actually fissioning. Roger, don't ruin my fun. I just had, I just had my Eureka moment and you just took it from me. I barely even held, I barely even held the trophy. The, uh, well, the, the other problem is how long they last. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Island stability. I, one, of, one of the things that I, I was struck by, because it, it had never occurred to me, is, you know, you've heard of the natural nuclear reactor down in Africa. Uh-huh. That, it's like uh, two billion years old. Yeah. And one of the reasons that that was possible was that two billion years ago, all of the uranium on Earth <laughs> the had, more U2, <laughs> had more U-235 in it because of the half-life. Fuck. And so it was... What we would consider enriched uranium, all the uranium in the entire world was enriched, enriched by modern standards. So it wasn't as difficult to get a fission reaction to build, going to in, build in a 
structure like that. Well, or at least a nuclear reactor. Well, but uh, you know, propped I'll, fission reactions probably not going to happen naturally. But um, I mean, it, like if you could go back in time, you would just be able to probably it'd be a lot less of a hassle to make fissile material. Well, yeah, you wouldn't need as as large of an industrial thing, but you would still need quite a bit yeah. because you're talking about you know like 1.4 percent versus 90 percent yeah so you still what? you would still need to enrich it to yeah. a certain extent but it would make it a lot easier to build a reactor to, to generate plutonium which you would still then have to process chemically in yeah. order to uh extract it and all the stuff that we did at hanford but yeah it, it's like it, you, you might have done it for oh maybe three quarters of a billion dollars instead of two billion dollars in 1945 dollars you know how like um, now we don't even try to find <laughs> nuclear enrichment plants what we do is just try to find like uh, nu- uh nuclear like material and we just track the flow of that to see where it's being brought to process it's easier to do that than it is to try to find every nuke what if there was like a form of like like temporal like i don't know not terrorism but it'd be like, you know, the temporal police would be like, they'd go up to some nation, go up to Iran and be like, we see you're uh, going to 2 billion BC Africa an awful lot lately. Like, <laughs> well, we just, can a guy just time travel? And it's like, could we see what's in your bag? <laughs> like, oh, if, if people were time traveling, anyone who knew about it would be freaking right the fuck out because it had so many really weird implications. The, uh, I, it, I don't know how much more of this my brain can handle, Roger. You you have already thoroughly destroyed it. Oh, you'll get used to it. People can get used to anything. That's you know. Well, well, so so I just ri- I just ripped your worldview apart. You, it's, you know, yeah, just get hey, well, on a on a darker note. You'll thank me in the morning. I, I, on a, hey, on a darker <laughs> note of getting used to stuff and tolerances, dude. I had on a woman earlier, not Mitzi, but um, Christy Wells, and we talked. That episode was before this. That'll be uploaded tomorrow human trafficking and child sex trafficking fucking not actually you know what let's not end this on a demonic dark note <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah, roger I mean, like, we've been talking about fucking miracles of modern technology and here, of course okay? i had to bring in like satanic rituals like hey did you hear about this um <laughs> fuck man fuck roger i appreciate that let's wrap this one up and um let me check right now before we even before we even scooch. Let me let me what day is today? We are in November. Yeah. Uh what do you want? Do you want Sunday or do you want Monday? Either works out. But uh whatever you think would work better for you. I got a um, I got a Sunday midday with uh with a guy that's already been on Ed Morales, but I'd all... rather do, but yeah, let's let's get let's uh, do uh, do the weekday then because uh, that way I'm On not you, you know uh, haven't haven't uh, had as much wine to drink before the <laughs> <laughs> all right because because uh, I've been at work yeah yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, now you do realize one day I'm going to show up and I'm going to be like, I have no idea what the fuck I want to talk about. What do you want to talk about? Tommy? I don't give a fuck. No, I've been thinking about that. One day you're going to show up without a topic. And you know what? It's going to be a beautiful thing because you and I are just going to riff because we have yet to riff. We always come in with a topic. One day we're just going to riff and we're going to, you know what? It'll be the first moment. It'll, yeah, it'll be like the early, it'll be the early universe. It'll be the first moment that like gluon stuck together. Who knows? You know? In the beginning, the universe was created. It's been widely criticized as like a as a controversial move. 
One day you're going to show up without a topic, and it's either going to be for the better or worse. But we're going to bravely. People have been complaining to God about it ever since. Yeah, yeah. We're going to bravely go. Why did you do that? We're going to bravely go where no podcast has gone before. Because yeah, you and I come in here, and we have, yeah, we have, uh, we have scaffolding. We have topics. So every once in a while, you know what? Whenever I have a drink again, one day I'll have one. Maybe when the podcast gets to like a million subscribers, you and I are going to get shit-faced and we'll do like an eight-hour episode. That was probably going to be like five years from now, probably like 2025. We'll get shit-faced on Grand Marnier. We'll just get blackout drunk and we're just going to dive into it. We're going to talk about synthesizing elements. We're just going to go until we vomit and pass out. The episode is just going to end. The final hour is just going to be both of us snoring until someone wakes up and turn, <laughs> uh, turns it off. But until, sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. All right, so I'll oh fuck, so I'll, I'll put you down for uh, Pearl Harbor, December seventh. Right? Oh. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we'll do five o'clock again. Five uh, my time, six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever works best for you. Is this best time? Yeah, because uh, uh, well, the nice thing is it's not uh, it's not early enough to interfere too much with work. I can knock off a little yeah, early to yeah. do my final preps, but it's also not so late that I can't uh, like watch a TV show or something afterward. Yeah, yeah, if I yeah. Want to, you know? yeah. Um, yeah, I got a DVD in the mail from Netflix. The parrot is kind of tapping his feet, uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, I had a few I had a few rabbits to pull out of hats from. Yeah. Uh, my, my goal my goal is to drain them all out of you until I get you to show up and you go I got nothing and that's where the magic's gonna be at. Yeah. well yeah <laughs> hey dude necessity's the mother of invention and desperation's the drunk uncle so we're gonna figure this shit out that sounds yeah yep, that'll work okay yeah. <laughs> it'll be magic uh, I'll uh, I'll let you know if I think of something. <laughs> all right, my man. Well, I'll send you a link when the. Right now, I'm trying to stagger episodes more because I realized when I do like two a day, I'll do two a day for a week and I'll put out 14, and I realize no one watches 14. So now I'm just putting them out one a day. So I already have the episode for tomorrow, Christy Wells, for the child trafficking that's going to upload tomorrow. And then I'm going to queue yeah. this one to upload on Wednesday morning. So this one's not yeah. going to be up until Wednesday, just FYI. Okay. Not, not that you were yeah. pressing, but. Yeah, well, yeah, the guy who loaned me the gauge blocks is probably going to appreciate a link to it. And oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll get them up. And, but then there's also me just being me. This one might upload. And I'll be like, fuck it. It's uploaded. I, I don't have any patience. Yeah. I have the patience. I think, I, think, I think it does make sense to uh, to slow the pace down a little bit because yeah. you're going to get some fatigue. Because you yeah. I know I've been, I've been looking at uh, a couple that I thought, well, this is turning out kind of interesting. But damn, he's put out quite a few of them lately and yeah. I got stuff to do. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right now it's, it's yeah, it's I'm at sitting at this is and, and, and you've had some really damn good guests lately. Thanks, man. So, That's yeah, not an accident. That was a lot of effort. And uh, oh, I believe it. I'm, I'm out of I'm out of my my long line of guests. And so now I'm in this like scramble mode of like, fuck, I gotta, <laughs> it's just improv. I'm like, put it all together. So now I'm emailing a bunch of people. I've been trying to email a bunch of authors and then I go to Google them and they're dead. I've been really upset about that recently. Don't you hate it when that happens? It's fucking selfish is what it is. I'll I'll tell you. I'll tell you, bud. You know, back when I was a kid, back when I was a kid, they didn't know where heavy elements came from and Pluto was a planet. But... (laughs) (laughs) All right, Roger. Let's wrap this bitch up. I gotta go piss and go eat. Not that you asked and not that you needed to know that, but... um. 
Thanks as always, man. I fucking love our episodes, dude. Yeah, they are. I love Professor Roger. I love learning. <laughs> All right, my I, man. I I I enjoy uh, bouncing stuff off of you. The, the the look in your eyes when you were like realizing this can do a thousandth of an inch and all. I was yeah, like, yeah. And, and and you were like, wow, boggling. And I'm like, you have no idea what You're I'm like, gonna do bitch, next. <laughs> bitch, look at my magic cape. You're like, what you want, man? I got I got ten thousand. I got hundred thousand. I got a million. What you want, man? It's all black market measurement shit. What you need? Fuck yeah. Hey. But I appreciate Thanks it, Roger. Time. All right, my man. Take it easy. Stay safe. God bless everybody. And uh, well, we're too close to Thanksgiving and too far from Christmas. So nobody gets a holiday wishing. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Later, Roger. <laughs>